get full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. From Tops comes the all-new digital card collecting app, Star Wars Card Trader. For the first time ever, collect and trade everything from legendary 1977 Star Wars cards to new cards featuring exclusive content, all from the comfort of your mobile device. Star Wars Card Trader. These are the cards you're looking for. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. Star Wars news and commentary. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. I've seen Star Wars 500 times. Star Wars number one. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Now it's time for Rebel Force Radio. We would be honored if you would join us. I tell you, there is no waiting on this one. Just a day after the firing of Miller and Lord, we get the announcement that it's definitely Ron Howard stepping in, and uh, we've already got comments, public comments from Ron Howard, also Bob Iger. Those are coming up here on Rebel Force Radio this week's show, June 30th, 2017. What did you think we were going to be talking about? This is the biggest Star Wars story since Star Wars. And it just keeps unfolding. And a lot of opinions flying out there. In fact, uh, according to one source, uh, many Hollywood insiders with lots of years experience are just blown away by this story. In particular, uh, the reaction from fans, especially those that are in support of the Miller and Lord vision for this film. Um, The the fans seem to be uh, pretty split on this. Uh, But we're going to be breaking it all down, as we always do here on Rebel Force Radio. Uh, Lots of really fun things coming up this week, including Star Wars author Dr. David West Reynolds. You've heard that name before. He, of course, wrote the very famous article. He was really the first Star Wars archaeologist and the guy who rediscovered many, many of the shooting sites for the original Star Wars film, 1977's uh, Episode Four. Uh, back in the mid-90s, it was David that was the first to uh, find them, even before Lucasfilm rediscovered them. We're going to be uh, talking to him in the cantina. Um, and he's got a really, really awesome project that he's uh, looking uh, for uh, Star Wars fans to help him out. Um, get all those details, plus the aftermath of the Han Solo director shakeup. And uh, don't forget about Star Wars Forces of Destiny. That's going to be premiering here in just a few days. So much news, so little time. And uh, let's let's bring him in here to help me with that. And so much more, my good friend and yours from Chicago, Jimmy Mack. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars fans. Totally looking forward to talking to uh, Dr. David West Reynolds this week on the show. He's going to really 
share a lot of great stories with us, I'm sure, about his discovery of such iconic shooting locations. I should say rediscovery of such iconic locations as the Lars Homestead, the Judlin Wastes, and uh, even uh, where the old Crate Dragon found his eternal resting spot. <laughs> David was the first guy to go back there in search of those Star Wars sites. And uh, he certainly has had an amazing career working with Lucasfilm and uh, writing so many great Star Wars books. So this is a conversation I've been looking forward to having for a long time. But, of course, the thing that is on the forefront of all Star Wars fans' concerns right now is the uh, swapperoo of the old director chair uh, moving Lord and Miller away from the Han Solo film and bringing in Ron Howard. So... I don't know, Jason. I don't think we should hesitate. I think we should show no mercy, and we should jump right into news headlines. All right, let's do it. I have good news for you, my lord. That's good news. Come closer, I have good news. And you know how... uh you know how the grocery stores do it? You put milk at the back of the store. We've got an outrageous, unthinkable story that you cannot miss. So do not forget. To, <laughs> you got to listen to the whole show. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, I, Dr. David West Reynolds, that, that, that sounds awfully kind of dry. You got to you gotta hear this. This is David has got some just fantastic stories to tell you. So really, really chock full from beginning to end. Great show. So let's get right to it. Um, the guy everybody's talking about, Ron Howard, he uh, was at the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity just a couple of days ago. Hot off the, uh, the press went the news that he was going to be directing, stepping in and directing the Han Solo film taking over for Lord Miller. Uh, Ron Howard was on the stage at Cannes, and a question from the audience came up, and here he is talking about it for the very first time in public. One of the questions from the audience is, what does it mean to you to be working on a Star Wars film? Well, I've, I've been around the Star Wars universe from the beginning because uh, when I was being directed by George Lucas on, uh, on American Graffiti in, uh, in 72, and we were standing there out in front of this, this uh, drive-in, uh, Mel's drive-in in San Francisco where we were shooting, and I, and, uh, and I said, do you, do you already know what, you know what you think your next film might be? And he said, uh, well, yeah, I want to do a science fiction movie, but a really fun science fiction movie, kind of like Flash Gordon, but, you know, with all this kind of spe great special effects of Stanley Kubrick's 2001. And he just sort of said it, he just kind of threw it away. And I thought, well, that sounds like a kind of a crazy idea. <laughs> but as it began to unfold and I began to hear more and more about it, I was curious, so curious to see it. And on day one, my wife Cheryl and I went to see it. We hadn't been invited to any special screenings, despite the success of American Graffiti. The whole thing was kind of under wraps and secretive. And I went, and I was so moved by the movie. I was transported by the movie. It's sort of all the things that you, that you dream you're going to have in an experience at the theater. But we had to stand in line two hours in those days to, to, to see the movie, because movies weren't released in so many theaters. We literally left almost speechless and just said, you want to see it again? 
And she said, yeah, we got in line and had to stand in line for another 90 minutes to see it a second time that day. So you can say that I, I've been a fan forever. So many people involved with um, uh, the Star Wars franchise are friends. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's, it's gratifying to, to be able to, um, you know, lend my voice to the Star Wars universe uh, now. I'm, I'm coming in at a point where, the, the, you know, it's already been in production. Uh, and, uh, and there's already been a lot of great work done. So there you go. I mean, that is, uh, I how, how do you not like Ron Howard, right? I mean, he, he is maybe one of the most intrinsically likable people, you know, going back to, uh, the, the, the cute little kid in the music man, uh, film with Robert Preston to Opie to, uh, Richie to, uh, well, with a stop in there uh, with uh, American Graffiti and then becoming a, a really beloved director. And the one thing, I, I just want to throw this uh, out about uh, Ron Howard, something that always has impressed me, is a lot of times you'll see people that were child actors uh, or they become very well known for a particular role, in his case, two very iconic roles, Opie Taylor from uh, The Andy Griffith Show and Richie Cunningham from um, uh, Happy Days. And you see them kind of run away from it, particularly if they get uh, known or famous for something else. And here's this guy at the time. Yeah, look, you know, I've heard some some snide remarks online. Oh, you know, the the, the uh, some of the movies, you know, these Dunner stinkers. Well, he's got a huge body of work and they can't all be hits as the great uh, uh Michael Caine once said to Roger Ebert, they can't all be hits, Roger, as he was being asked about Jaws 4. Um, but anyway, I like Jaws 4. Jaws of Revenge. It was good. I ate Enjoyed my plane. Um, <laughs> I like but, that. But anytime there was ever a, a reunion uh, special on TV for the Andy Griffith Show or Happy Days, Ron Howard was always there. You know, whether it was an American graffiti reunion at a car show or it was, you know, uh, Andy Griffith show or 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 or, uh, or happy days. Ron Howard, no matter how big and important he got, he always remembered that and would come back and do that. I just was so always so impressed. They didn't run away from that. And he was just so uh, complimentary over working with legends like uh, Don Knotts and Andy Griffith, you know, when they would, you know, as they those two uh, passed away over the last uh, decade and just his his words about working with them and just he's such a great likable guy and the reports are that he cons was concerned you know there is sort of a, a jim from all the articles that have been uh, been coming out um in fact there's one here about who was the guy that was the director of uh of ant-man and he got he left and was replaced what I've got it I've got it here. Hold on one second. James Cameron. James Cameron. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't no. Jim Cameron. No, it wasn't Jim Cameron. No, was it Steven Spielberg? No, no, no. I mean, no, when, when no, I think no, of Ant Ant Man, I'm only thinking the top names when it comes to Ant Man. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I've got it right here. Edgar Wright. I'm, I apologize. So Edgar Wright, he left uh, Ant Man, and they're saying in in similar circumstances too. Um, what happened with Lord and Miller. And, and he said, he said that any director who mauls taking someone else's job should be aware of the potential ethical issue. 
And, you know, Ron Howard has actually reached out, according to reports, reached out to Lord and Miller. They've had some email conversations. There's sort of a code out there, I think, in some ways amongst directors. Uh, he, he's an innocent guy in all this. He just got hired to do a job. He goes in there and he's trying to pick up the pieces. Um, but again, from reports we're hearing, reached out to both Lord and Miller and is being quite amiable and they're being quite respectful back to him. Um, so I think that this was a very calculated decision. Not only in my judgment, do they get, I think a very, very capable director. We'll talk more about it. Um, but someone who is perhaps a bridge builder, someone whose integrity and character is sort of beyond reproach. Jim, do you think that that those other factors might have led uh, Kathleen Kennedy to choosing Ron Howard? Absolutely. And you also have to consider the personality he brings to the set. I assume that he is... uh, he has his feet on the ground as much as when he's directing a film as he does when he's doing interviews or acting, what have you. He seems like a very grounded person. You don't want to bring in some hotshot guy who's going to be like, all right, we'll tear all this down, rebuild all that. We're going to do it my way now. This is my vision. <laughs> I think Ron is being brought in specifically to take a lot of the hard work that's already been done on this film and figure out what to do with it, not start it all from scratch and go back to ground zero and mold this in his ultimate vision. You know, this is going to be a lot of compromise for Ron, and he seems to have the personality and integrity to see it through. And I think that's really important because if you try to reinvent the wheel this deep into production, I think you might be dealing with some crew revolt. Um, maybe there might be just too much friction going on to help, you know continue the production in a healthy fashion. So you have to bring in a guy who really is someone that the troops can rally behind. Ron Howard seems to be that kind of guy. Yeah. Now, there was an initial report, and I don't believe... Um we talked about it last week because, I mean, the news was just breaking uh, when we uh, when we were last all together. Uh, but that applause erupted on the set when Kathleen Kennedy announced that Ron Howard would be taking the reins. That report, if you read that and it showed up in numerous articles, has been uh, not retracted, but uh, it has been um Downplayed. Uh, Yes, and clarified that the announcement that led to the crew breaking into applause was that a new director would be coming soon, uh, that Lord and Miller were not coming back. So it wasn't necessarily applause for Ron Howard specifically, but the idea that someone new would be coming in. And speaking of retractions and updates, these stories are uh, being updated online. Anthony Bresnikin's uh, piece about how Ron Howard is picking up the pieces was updated just yesterday as various sources are coming forward talking about the shooting style of Lord and Miller. Jim, if you recall, uh, so much of the conversation was that they had this improvisational uh, shooting style because they were really going for some slapstick comedy. Um, but others that are close to Lord Miller have said, well, improv improvising on set doesn't always mean comedy and that what they were trying to do here was 
kind of give this film more of a Western feel than a screwball comedy. And so, hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, like, like, what do you mean Western? Like Blazing Saddles? <laughs> yeah, it's a Western. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were wanting to shift the tone to humor. Um, uh, well, actually, this this quote, according to, uh, uh, oh, oh, okay. Uh, so. Again, a source that is close to Lord and Miller said, look, if they all they if all they wanted to do was just shift the tone to humor, they wouldn't have hired cinematographer Bradford, Bradford Young, uh, who's known for uh, the arrival and a most violent year. So I, I think that there is um, there are definitely surrogates out there. Let's put it this way. Um, we know that Lucasfilm, obviously, NDAs up the yin yang, very uh, litigious. Um and, and part of me, and I'm not trying to editorialize too much here, but I want to look at this thing from all angles and see if you're kind of getting this, Jim, is I, I feel as though part of me feels a little bad for Miller and Lord because, I mean, you're seeing headlines like, uh, what's this one? Uh, with, this is from Mashable, Chris Taylor writing about, with every new Han Solo revelation, Lord and Miller keep looking worse. Part of me feels as though that's because these guys are under wraps. They can't talk, but Lucasfilm PR can. And so there can be spin out there. I'm not saying these guys are saints, that they're innocent. I'm not saying they didn't screw up. I personally believe they were wrong from the beginning. But I feel as though their side may not be getting heard. So they've got surrogates out there saying, wait, 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 wait. We weren't doing some wacky screwball comedy. We weren't making the Three Stooges, for God's sakes. What we were doing is our style of of shooting, and you don't just get uh, comedy when you do some improvisation. However, that kind of improvisation style flies in the face of someone like a Lawrence Kasdan, who has carefully constructed every word along with his son on the screenplay. Yeah. But but what, what's your take on on the the Miller and Lord angle? Are, are their voices being heard? Do you think there's another side of this story? or Well, there's always two sides to every story, and, and these guys were brought on to direct a film. They ran into some friction with uh, the other creatives involved in the studio itself, and it's just unfortunate that they got this deep into shooting it before a change was made. And uh, traditionally... The change of directors in the middle of a production is a big red flag in Hollywood. And, of course, people are going to jump all over it. As far as damaging their reputation, however, these guys are comedy directors. So if you are looking for comedy directors, are you going to refuse these guys' employment because they didn't mesh with the Han Solo film? I don't know. You can't blame them for taking the job. Anyone, even, you know, JC last week was saying, I may not be ready to direct a Star Wars film right now, but if they offered it to me, I'd take it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, right. and, and, you know, they're, they're young and uh, they've had some success under the belt or their belts already. And uh, they, they're probably, they were probably feeling really good about it. The thing that could be damaging to these guys is the report that, when things reached a boiling point with the studio was one day in June, they were supposed to be shooting, getting up to 12 to 15 angles 
um, as far as camera placement goes in a single scene. And they sat in the cockpit uh, doing what? I don't know if they were going over the script, if they were working with actors, if they were just discussing things. But they, they locked themselves up in the cockpit like a couple of radio DJs who are not going off the air until uh, until uh, the Scorpions come to town or whatever. I don't know. But um, but so they stayed in the, the, the cockpit fal- uh, of the Falcon and didn't start shooting till 1 p.m. that day which is really late for a film crew that's expected to get these 15 different camera angles on a certain scene. And, and so I don't know if this is a case of them being a little passive-aggressive, trying to actually slow down the production because they're not getting their way. You know, things like this happen when egos get involved. And I'm not, I'm just saying that that's a possibility. But I just want to know what they were doing sitting in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon all day and not shooting a movie, which is what they were hired to do. So when things like that leak off of a film set, that could have damaging effects on their careers moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a, actually there's a great piece in The Hollywood Reporter that is probably the most detailed in terms of describing what was going on um, over the course of the last few months uh, on this film. And... You know, essentially what you have is things like um, a sort of a a growing um, anxiety as they were starting to see the dailies. There's talk of Lawrence Kasdan reviewing the dailies at his house and being very concerned that they're going off script. And uh, Kathleen Kennedy is aware that her uh, screenwriter is 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 concerned. She's not liking what she's seeing. Um, and she sends Lawrence Kasdan out to London to sort of be, well, uh, not a shadow director per se, but maybe like a shadow director. Well, they were um, saying that there could be, you know, definitely, it, it seems as if, if it's a repeat of what yes. went on with Gareth Edwards in Rogue One when they sent Tony Gilroy out to oversee the reshoots. Right. Right. Significant reshoots. So apparently they were starting to go in that direction by inserting Kasdan in that role. Someone asked online on uh, on one of the social medias, they said, hey, uh, Rebel Force Radio, Lawrence Kasdan's a director. Why not just bring him in to do the film? And I was thinking, well, maybe it's because it's a real big special effects film. And uh, outside of the movie um, Dreamcatcher, that Kasdan directed about 15 years ago. Most of his films are romantic comedies. So you might just be putting, you know, removing two comedy directors only to put in another one. But no, I don't think it would be that, that to that extreme because Kasdan, of course, is intimately familiar with the screenplay that he wrote. Yeah. And keep in mind that this very well could be Lawrence Kasdan's last Star Wars film. So he wants it done right. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. wants it done, right? So maybe he pitched Kennedy on going out there to shadow the guys or what have you or 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 influence them to create a film that's more in line with what Kathleen Kennedy and her team imagined 
but it just never got that far because yeah. Lord and Miller weren't willing to play ball like Gareth Edwards was, and the decision was made to blow them out. Bring in Ron Howard. Bring in Ron Howard. You don't need Lawrence Kasdan anymore all of a sudden to yeah. go out there and shadow anyone on the set. However, I wouldn't be surprised if Kasdan is maybe a little more actively involved, and maybe he's going to be spotted around those sound stages when filming resumes. It, it could be. He was definitely lurking around there on the set uh, for a little while, um, just prior to Miller and Lord's exit. Um, in fact, there's a report that Miller and Lord would actually, when, when Kazan was there, they would do a couple of takes where they were the actors were um, using the dialogue exactly as written and then doing some additional takes with that sort of improvisational uh, style. Now, one of the things that popped up online in several places, including on our comment in the, in the comments on our Facebook page, is well, wait a minute. What, what what's Kasdan's problem with improv? Because one of the most famous moments in all of Star Wars was improvised, and of course they're referring to the "I love you, I know" moment. And Jim, I don't know. Um, we'd have to look in the archives. We we do have some panel audio of Kirshner talking about that scene. But to the best of what's been recorded, yes, that was something that Han, Han Solo, that Harrison Ford did come up with while on set, but he did not improvise it during a take without discussing it first. So they realized that the dialogue wasn't working as written. It was supposed to be, I love you, I know, and I'll be back, you know, some sort of, you know, hey, it was Lawrence Kasdan, but looking back at it, it didn't sound too Han Solo-like. And so they kind of huddled, and that was one of the ideas that, that Harrison tossed out to Kirshner. They did it, it worked, and the rest is cinema history. But as far as uh, you know, Star Wars having any kind of a, a legacy in improvising on the, on the set, uh, that's a bit of an overstatement, I think. And has anyone ever asked, Kazin, hey, you know that I love you, I know line. You didn't write it. They came up with it. What do you think of it? Do you, does anyone ever ask him? Maybe, he, maybe he's still a little frosted about that. Maybe, maybe he still remembers that, and it's like an open scar. So when they start ad-libbing on the Han Solo set, he freaks out. Yeah. Obviously, when Lawrence Kasdan wrote the, the screenplay for The Empire Strikes Back, I think it was his first ever Hollywood gig. He was like 30 years old, and that was the first thing he ever did was he wrote Empire Strikes Back. And he didn't have the clout then to go out to the set and start raising mm-hmm. hell with George Lucas or anything like that. He had no clout to do anything like that. Maybe he wanted to. So we shouldn't necessarily jump to any conclusions about Lawrence Kasdan and that specific ad lib. Maybe he was a little man. Maybe he's jealous that that Kirshner gets all the credit for that great line. <laughs> hey, he you know, e- eagles are you. eagles. We all have them, and we're we all do. Human. We do. Now, Jim, you alluded to something um, at the top of the show that is buried in this story. Again, this is the Hollywood Reporter story by Kim Masters. I say buried because it, I, I thought it was very significant. I think it raised your eyebrows as well. But in addition to there being concerns about Lord and Miller's ability to command the set there uh, in London, there was also concern from Lucasfilm about Alden Ehrenreich's performance to the point that they brought in an acting coach. Yes. Maybe he just wasn't tapping into what Harrison Ford brought to the character, and he just needs a little coaching. That that I don't 
I, you know, I have no problem with that. It happening so late in the production, well, obviously all these all these troubles, you know, bubbled up to the surface. So, so now there's going to be some knee-jerk reactions. But it does concern me hearing these stories because last week we had heard from a, quote, source that it was Alden who alerted Lucasfilm that the, the, the character was maybe getting a little too off base. Mm-hmm. But now we're hearing that as the uh, production staff is reviewing the dailies, there are some questions about Alden's ability in the role. Mm-hmm. Is that is that what I'm supposed to infer from this? Well, the, so, the, the, the quote is not entirely satisfied with the performance that they were eliciting from him. Now they're very notice the way mm-hmm. that this is written that the that Lucasfilm was was not entirely satisfied with the performance that the directors were eliciting from Alden. So there's definitely some masking here where this is not a, an indictment on Alden's performance, but the performance that he was giving because he was being directed that way. Mm-hmm. And maybe they believe Ron Howard will be able to supply the proper guidance to get the acting that is required for this role out of Alden. But yeah, you're right, Jason. It, it appears that the way that's being re- reported is the blame is clearly being placed on the doorstep of Miller and Lord, not necessarily Alden. He was just doing what he was told. He was he was being directed, and he was responding to that direction. So when we reassess that little report, I I can breathe a sigh of relief to a certain extreme because what they're saying is that they just need the right director to get the proper acting chops out of Alden. So yeah. So, so you got them being concerned about things. You got the, uh, the acting coach coming on board. So Kennedy sends Kasdan out to London. Uh, Kasdan, it doesn't seem like he was there very long and realized that this is uh, not going well. And within days, Lord Miller are shown the door. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, look, we don't want to cry too much for Lord Miller. Apparently, they've been, they're being courted to direct the Flash uh, feature film for Warner Brothers. So I think they'll probably land on their feet. But the, 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 the larger story, the larger narrative that a lot of folks are focusing on is what you and I picked up on last week is, is this part of a pattern? Does this join? Is this, you know, a, a Josh Trank, Gareth Edwards and Tony Gilroy, and even going back to J.J. Abrams and, and uh, Jim, you alluded to this a little bit last week, too. You were saying, look, things weren't all that rosy with 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 J.J. Uh, Abrams. We know that there was a definite uh, sort of division between the bad robot guys, the Lucasfilm guys. Um, and keep in mind, it was J.J. Abrams. But then again, he had the clout to do it, who the first big thing he did was one of the first big things he did was throw down and say that the he was not going to get this film out in May. And he fought them very hard and got the December release date that he wanted. Yeah. So is this part of the bigger pattern? Well, I, the, the pattern is this. Lucasfilm 
slash Disney. I'll say Disney because it's really Disney pulling the strings here, folks. They are the ones directing Lucasfilm to fart out these films as fast as they can. <laughs> and, and because of that indiscretion and because of the fact that I, I, I'm trying to word this in the, the kindest way possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go for it. But I mean, corporate greed is what corporate greed is. And their shareholders are demanding. I don't know. I don't know any shareholders, and I haven't heard any of them demanding, but apparently they're demanding that they see dividends on the $4.4 billion spent on Star Wars. Sure, they want to see results. And this is like the Golden Goose. You've, they've, they've, they're now. They're now 2-0 and on this. Two incredible films. I mean, we, we got to admit, I mean, Force Awakens and Rogue One, fantastic. Hit it out of the park. I mean, Force Awakens, you could say, yeah, it had tons of momentum going into it because it was the reunion of the original characters. But Rogue One was a total crapshoot. And, and they were if, able to create a patchwork quilt of a film that turned out to be pretty damn good. Yes. Now, the, the Force Awakens, keep in mind, was in development before George Lucas even sold the company. Correct. So that had the, the benefit of even more time than J.J. had, you know? It had the benefit of all of that, that concept work yep. and, and script work and, or, or just at least story treatments happening. Mm-hmm. Sure. To put it into a certain place. Michael Arndt did receive a screenwriting credit for the film. Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Now, so, one thing to, to, to point out is that despite what we've heard in the early days of, uh, of Ep 7 with J.J. and pushing back on the release date and there being a rift between the Bad Robot guys and the Lucasfilm guys, Despite the Josh Trank, the Gareth Edwards, and the Tony Gilroy, despite all of that, one guy that we've not heard anything about in any kind of negative way or any sort of turbulence on the set is Ryan Johnson in Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. There's been no controversy. The only controversy that has come out of that film is, I think, a complete misunderstanding of Mark Hamill's comments from uh, weeks ago about you know, him saying I told uh, Ryan he was all wrong just, this is not Luke Skywalker you know that uh, that he, he got the character all wrong but I was so glad to be wrong you know I mean there was that whole bit where he was saying look he believes that he is going that Ryan Johnson is going to be vindicated in the same way that JJ and Kasdan were in terms of holding Luke off to the end, blah, blah, blah. We talked about it on previous shows. But we should give some credit here to Ryan Johnson, who uh, has come uh, pretty much unscathed through this whole process. So far. So far. <laughs> you know, when the film comes out, that could be a whole different song. Yeah. You're whistling there, pal. Well, but, it, um, it could be, but I mean, all of this controversy seems to be pre-release that we've, we've, we're familiar with for these Star Wars movies. Well, there was no shakeup in personnel. That we know of, no. there was no big public shakeup. Ryan Johnson was hired. He wrote it. He directed it. And he completed principal photography, completed reshoots. There, there might still be some reshoots going on for The Last Jedi, but I would imagine they're very minimal. 
you know, like second unit stuff or whatever. Who knows? Uh, just, you know, picking up some pieces here and there. Um, you know, it, it does seem like everything went swimmingly with the Johnson production. So, um, so it's not all bad news. No, com- it's coming out of the production of these films. And I got other, you know, sometimes the news isn't so bad either. I mean, we're hearing about things, shakeups, guys losing their jobs. Well, of course that's bad, but it conflict and, and, you know, all these, these, these terrible distractions and compromises and schedules and all of this stuff. It, it comes into play. It, it, a little craziness is a good thing. Just look at the production of the original Star Wars. I totally agree. I think that this can be at times very healthy for the artistic process. I think conflict and compromise to an extent can be a good thing. One could argue, Jim, that one of the things that the prequel suffered from was a lack of conflict and a lack of compromise, that it was all George's way all the time. And that led to some dissatisfaction with the finished product, whereas you had more more struggle and perhaps more conflict and compromise with the original films. Um, we should get to this. We uh, leave it to TMZ. Uh, they managed to track down Bob Iger as he was waiting for the valet uh, somewhere out in California. And uh, they had some questions for him and his thoughts about the new director for Han Solo. Mr. Iger, how are we doing, sir? Good, how are you? Good to see you. Listen, everyone wants to know, can the Han Solo movie be salvaged this far into production? <laughs> yes, of course. You think Ron- so? Ron Howard's in charge. Yeah, of course. This, this is better than that. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Does this genre play to Ron's strengths, though? I mean, the only other space movie he's done is Apollo 13. You're asking me a lot of questions. I don't think that's relevant it's, in this case. Yeah. Is he a big Star Wars guy, Ron? I, you have to ask him. You guys have to do an interview with him to make sure he knew about, like, the world and the force You're asking and me stuff. too much. All right. He's going to be great. One last thing. I'm not saying it is, but what can you say to the fans to convince them that it's not doomed? You know, that it's not doomed? Yeah. First of all, we have a great cast, we have a great script, and we have a great director. Yeah. It's going to be fine. You're excited. I'm very excited. Do you think it's going to be delayed too much? Not going to say. No. Not going to say. Not going to say. Yep. Not that gonna, answer yeah. was very... That, that non-answer... Was very telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Which means obviously he's, he's already been talking about this. Has come up, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And he's not going to say, "Well, we're going to." Yeah, of course, we're going to stick with that May twenty eighteen release date. He's not going to say that because his integrity's on the line. He doesn't want to look foolish when he knows there's a distinct possibility, or should I say, probability, that the Han Solo film is going to be delayed by a number of months in twenty eighteen. Yeah, now the holiday season of 2018 is already quite full. You've got, I believe, uh, the sequel to Frozen. What else you got there? It's been written about all over the place. We cover Star Wars here, folks. But um, needless to say, there's a lot of what they call tentpole films that are coming out. They're scheduled for that. So it's a very, very crowded place, particularly for Disney. I mean, one of the downsides that Disney has in being, you know, 
the House of Mouse and the House of Star Wars and the House of Marvel is that they have to be careful competing with themselves. And so there's not a clear runway for the Han Solo film to lift off of in the holiday season, Uh, certainly in that December slot. Now people are talking about, well, maybe a Thanksgiving release. Uh, Jim, you kind of uh, put it on the line. You you said as much last week that you uh, would not be a bit surprised. In fact, I think you said you look for it to be postponed. Yes, I do. I do. And you do have to take into account things like the holiday season. And you have to take into account the uh, the May release, which, you know, of course, has always been Star Wars month. Let's face it. Star Wars released May 25th, 1977, is what created the summer movie season. Sure, people went to see movies in the summer, but no one really considered it, you know, oh, this is when all the big blockbusters come out. You know, there was always a holiday season for going to films, but the summer season became a real thing in the 70s because of Star Wars. And so now you're looking at a situation where it might not be feasible to move the film into the later summer months, which I, you know, that's possible. What's wrong with an August release? You know, kids are just, who, pig, don't tell me kids are going to school and they're not going to see a new Star Wars film. Big whoop. They're going to go see it. Uh, they'll skip school if they have to go see it. Or what about October? You know, let's make a new tentpole season. <laughs> let's make a new blockbuster season with a Star Wars film and let's release in October. There's nothing wrong with that. And that also fills the gap. If you're looking at Disney films and the way they schedule those releases, you know, think outside the box. Who says they have to be such a slave to these traditional release times? You know what? I, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's a lot of uh, assumptions. You know, look, we're, we're now in the and I know this is not the same thing, but I'm saying we're now in the world of where content appears all types of places. You no longer have to have your trailer attached to a big film release. You can just release it online and there you go. You got um, huge successful uh, properties, uh, television shows on streaming sites like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu. There, there is, There are no rules really anymore. And one of the things I think that Hollywood suffers from is they still are... Th- Traditional Hollywood feels very, very trapped by some of these old rules. And you kind of want you know, to say to them, look, I, I don't care what month you release the damn thing. Release it when it's done. Release it when it's good. And I'll go see it. And so will everybody right. else. It doesn't yeah. matter. But I want to throw this at you because this is an angle that I don't think has really been uh, talked about. There's actually a, a, a great article at The Guardian uh, by Ben Child. And, and, and Ben's story is, don't get cocky, kid. Why Star Wars Han Solo movie needs a safe pair of hands. And what I like about this particular story is that he really gets into uh, looking at the, the, the franchise film and where the auteur producer meets the auteur director. And is that always a good thing? And and the, and the question I have for you, Jim, is, you know, George Lucas himself was such, a, 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 such an outspoken director when it came to studio interference. 
He, he broke away and became the most successful independent filmmaker in history because he didn't like the suits dictating to him what to do with his film. So when you look at what happened to Gareth, when you look at what happened to Lord Miller, something that occurred to me is, my God, the, the godfather of all of this is George Lucas. What would George do? If George was a Lord and Miller, if George was a Gareth Edwards, what would he do? Would he be anti-establishment, anti-studio, anti-producer interference? Or would he roll over? Does this in some kind of weird, inverted universe kind of way fly in the face of the spirit of what created Star Wars, which was George Lucas doing it his way, the director? Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And there is some kind of like cosmic weirdness going on with all that. But, you know, the thing that, I mean, George was so driven on doing it himself. He did it all himself, including coming up with the stories, researching them, writing them, writing his scripts. I mean, he, he was the full package. You don't get that with Lord and Miller. They're, they're coming into a property that's existed for four decades, and they have to adapt someone else's material to make a film. So that's the biggest difference, I think, between hired hands Lord and Miller and master of his own destiny George Lucas. Okay. So, so Kath, in, in, this, in this scenario, it's, it's different. You're saying it's not like Kathleen Kennedy is the... Uh, uh, who had American Graffiti? Was that United Artists that he he? I think yes. it was that he, yes, that, it he was. that he fought so hard over, and the guy said it wasn't even good enough to be on TV. I mean, is Kathleen Kennedy the new United Artists, and and Lord Miller is 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 George Lucas here, or they're you know interfering, or you're saying it's different because in the case of Star Wars or Graffiti, you know George was the guy that came up with the whole thing. It was his film. He was a, a, a filmmaker, not a hired gun to be steward temporarily over a, over a property. You can't be a revolutionary independent filmmaker like George Lucas if you are coming into an existing franchise and working with adapted material. You, you just can't. Mm -hmm. You just mm -hmm. can't. Uh, you know, George did it the right way. It, it, Lord and Miller are part of the system. George yeah. was always outside the system, and he had to work really hard to create that atmosphere for himself. Yeah. You know, this um, again, this article uh, from The Guardian, don't get cocky, kid, why Star Wars move, Star Wars Han Solo movie needs a safe point of ha uh, pair of hands. Um, he, he asks a question. He says, maybe the first question we should be asking here is, why, in Lord, why would Lord and Miller ever imagine that they would have free reign on a Star Wars film in the first place? And then exactly. he goes on to talk about Harry Potter and James Bond. Uh, you know, keep in mind, and actually I posted an article, a link to an article over at our uh, the Bondcast Facebook page, so check it out. It was uh, 007 Things You Didn't Know About Quentin Tarantino's Rejected James Bond Movie. Uh, right before um, uh, Martin Campbell was named as director of uh, Casino Royale, Quentin Tarantino had uh, a lot of interest in the film and was was campaigning for it. You know, Jim, you don't get much more uh, specialized or or auteur, so to speak, uh, as a director than Quentin Tarantino definitely has his own style. So he was saying that, you know, 
Quentin Tarantino may have made a really interesting James Bond film, uh, but it certainly wouldn't have held up and been able to sustain sequels. He probably wouldn't have come back for a sequel. It would have been a one and done. And what would the damage have been to the character in the process? So true. So true. You know, uh, Harvey Keitel is James Bond. You know, I mean, <laughs> what, what are we what are we talking about here with Quentin? But um, well, Quentin least- actually wanted actually, interestingly enough, he he wanted Pierce Brosnan to stay in the role. And he wanted Brosnan to come back as uh, 007 and do Casino Royale. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But um, but yeah, you know, you can just you can just tell him that it will stop being a Bond movie, and it will become a Tarantino film. So you're sacrificing the integrity of the franchise by mm-hmm. turning it over to someone who is going to take those liberties with the characters and the history. And that's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. That's a very scary thing for me as a fan, and I'm sure for a Hollywood executive to consider, especially a Hollywood executive like Kathleen Kennedy and Bob Iger, who spent $4.4 billion purchasing Star Wars. They're going to be protective of it. Right. The other um, connection that this guy draws is when Alfonso Cuaron was brought in to to direct uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third Harry Potter film. I know, Jim, you just finished up in the last few months – Another podcast you do, the franchise, where you looked at all seven, actually eight of the Harry Potter films. And so this was the third one. This was the one that, you know, it was all Chris Columbus and and John Williams and kind of uh, very fantastical, almost Wizard of Oz like, uh, very innocent. And then, boom, that third film comes. It's Alfonso Cuaron and everything changes. Now, in this writer's opinion, it was he feels it was the best of the Harry Potter films that to me has been the one that always stood out where I felt that the franchise derailed a little bit because it became an Alfonso Cuaron film as opposed to being a Harry Potter film. Hmm. It just, um, it just got too dark for you. Is that what, what the yeah, problem it, was? It with? got very dark. The, the kids weren't in their uniforms anymore. They were wearing, you know, more street clothes, um, unfortunately, it was just timing where you had the replacement of Dumbledore with Michael Gambone uh, replacing uh, Richard Harris. Uh, and, and, and he went for this real kind of a hippie look for Dumbledore uh, instead of sort of that, that traditional uh, wizard vibe. He really put his own, his own spin on it. Um, it worked for a lot of people. It didn't work for me. And it sort of held up as the one that sort of sticks out. Either you love it or you leave it. And, but it's an example of this, one of these auteur directors to, you know, turn this into a, a drinking game. Every time you hear swank, say auteur, uh, <laughs> take a drink. But the, the, these auteur directors um, taking over a, a franchise or, you know, um, a, a big film within a series. So, but uh, to sum it up, He says, you know, fans are always the first to complain when a new movie betrays the tone they have come to expect from a film series or like last year's Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice fails to hit anything vaguely approaching a tone in the first place. So perhaps we should give credit to the Kennedys, Kevin Feige's and Barbara Broccoli's of this world. They're unlikely to find their names listed in the works of auteur theory. 
for they represent, from the Maverick director's point of view, the enemy. But for those of us who fear our beloved film sagas go plunging into the nearest asteroid belt, and Rogue One is a serious case in point, they might occasionally be the best friends we have. So is Kathleen Kennedy the porter at the door making sure that we're getting the type of Star Wars film as a fan that we deserve and that we expect? Yeah, and we expect high standards. We expect groundbreaking technology. We expect deep storytelling. And we expect characters who maintained the the consistency of how they were originally portrayed years ago. Remember when Hasbro returned to the Star Wars action figure market in the mid-90s after taking about a 10-year break from making Star Wars action figures? And they came out with these... Like they, they're known as like the He-Man Star Wars figures or the <laughs> yeah. steroid Luke yeah, yeah. is what they were called because like they were all like ripped like Han Solo and giant biceps and you know they were just like bodybuilders. That's how they were like portrayed idealized, idealized versions of the characters. Yeah, fandom spoke up immediately, demanding realism, demanding authenticity, demanding consistency with the characters we know so well. It's a good so it point. Didn't take, it didn't take long for Hasbro to realize Star Wars fans demand exact, you know, we need exactness when it comes to portraying these characters. Yeah. If you veer off too far, we're not going to accept it. So Hasbro changed the sculpts and the figures started looking more realistic. And they started to look like what they looked like in the original trilogy. And that's what we want with this Han Solo film. We don't want a Jim Carrey thing. We don't want him <laughs> crawling out of Hog Squaddle's butt. You know, <laughs> we want authenticity with our Star Wars, and that comes down to how the characters are portrayed. Those shoes, or I should say, boots of Harrison Ford's are big ones to fill. Mm-hmm. We haven't forgotten Harrison. Okay, and there's your measuring stick right there. So. It's an yes. uphill battle. It's an uphill battle for the Han Solo film, which is a shame because I had a lot of optimism about this movie, and I'm still maintaining the optimism thanks to the addition of Ron Howard. And I don't think that this film's going to be a wash, but I think it will be delayed. I think the release date will be delayed, and I almost hope it will be at this point because I want it done right. I don't want steroid Luke. You know, I, I want a film that maintains the integrity of the characters and situations that have been established for the last 40 years. Yeah, um, I've got some of the details here. Some things that um, I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, oh, here we go. Um, so it looks as though so uh, Ron Howard, he's going to he's actually today was his first day on the set as we record this show here, June 26th. Um, Now, the shooting has gone all the way since February, and it was supposed to be completed in July, but now will continue into the first week of September. Now, this is the first we've heard about this. So we got a film that was originally supposed to wrap in July, now wrapping in September. Um, though Ron Howard is saying that uh, much of what Lord and Miller will still be, quote-unquote, very usable. 
I don't know if that's a direct quote from Ron Howard or if that's uh oh insiders 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 this is just like reading politics you know it's all um um a source familiar with his own thinking said that by the way that comes from our buddy Joel Kramer we were tweet uh texting back and forth and we're discussing some of these crazy stories uh, in the media he said you know a source familiar with his own thoughts <laughs> <laughs> the voice inside of his head said <laughs> yeah, all right uh hey um here's some uh, more han solo news that uh i hadn't heard of before jimmy you're the one that alerted this uh, alerted me to this is that um we okay so we got han solo check we got uh uh, Lando Calrissian, check. We've got um, uh, some uh, uh, love interest for Han Solo, pre-Princess Leia, check. We've got w- Woody Harrelson's character, uh, some sort of mentor-type uh, figure, check. The only thing we don't have is a is a big bad villain. Not that we're aware of at this Not point. Not that we're aware of, right. But rumors are that the big bad in this film, or one of them, is going to be... Ne Jabba Nobada. Yes. Jabba the Hutt. And uh, so this comes by way of uh, the hashtag show, one of those YouTube shows, um, and that Jabba is a significant factor in the Han Solo film, and that the uh, they got as much detail as to say that Jabba will be, the Jabba on screen will be part CGI and part animatronic, trying to merge the two forms from the original trilogy and those in the prequels and special editions. You know, they haven't, quite frankly, I think Jabba suffers from the same problem as uh, as uh, Yoda. I don't think they've really gotten, they had much more success with Yoda in the in episodes two and three with the, with the uh, CGI. But uh, Jabba, they just can't nail. You know, I mean, Jabba, ever since Return of the Jedi, has just looked so bizarre. From you didn't think he looked good in uh, Phantom Menace? You didn't think he looked good in Phantom Menace? I thought it was all right. No, no, no. no I thought no. it looked okay. I, I really did. I just thought he was. I don't like almost like there was too much texture. Like they tried to go over the top, trying to make him look real and. I don't know. It just. I don't think it's ever quite looked right. But you know, when you go back and you look at that great documentary. Uh, from Star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga. There's so much footage of them there in Jabba's palace shooting. And you take the lighting out of that, and it, it does look like a big piece of, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Um, latex. Latex, right. Yeah, it looks like a big hunk <laughs> of latex. You get the right lighting on it, and all of a sudden it just comes alive. It's magic. Um, but I just, I despite the wizardry at ILM, I just feel like they... They've never gotten it right, and I think that it takes, uh, just like with Yoda, there's a certain restraint. You can't overdo it because what you're trying to do is you're trying to recreate a puppet that has very limited articulation. I know, uh, Jim, I'm sure you remember the interviews to Frank Oz talking about CGI Yoda and how they had to really pull back. Rob Coleman agonized. It's famous. The the bonus features on the episode two and episode three DVDs of Rob Coleman agonizing over every shot of Yoda because there's so many things they can do, but they really have to pull it back, dial it back, and make it look limited. You don't want them doing more than the puppet did. 
But, I mean, they did. You know, they had him spinning around like some green blob there fighting uh, Count Dooku and stuff. I, I, I feel like they went a little overboard with the CGI at that point. I far more prefer the CGI Yoda duel with Palpatine in Revenge of the Sith. I think they went way overboard with Yoda in Attack of the Clones. In that well, George wanted him flopping around like a frog. He kept saying, you know, hopping on him, hopping around. That was frog. one of the things when I, um, you know, uh, in the years prior to the prequel era, and you used to think, wow, we only know Yoda when he's really old, living in the swamps. I mean, what was he like when he was actually a warrior and in, uh, in battle and stuff. And I always thought he would use the force to levitate himself to kind of fly around. He was doing more gymnastics in uh, <laughs> in uh, in the, the Attack of the Clones. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that whole saber duel never sat too well with me. But, hmm. uh, but we can talk about the prequel some other time. We got David West we got, Reynolds waiting for do. us. And we still got a we couple do. of stories left. I'm sorry if we, we end up going a little long this week because we want to give Dr. Reynolds the full opportunity to uh, tell us his incredible stories about finding the shooting locations in Tunisia. But uh, we are not going to be doing a show next week. We'll be celebrating the 4th of July with our families and taking a little summer break here. But we will be back in mid-June with more RFR and awesome guests and all kind of surprises we got planned. We got a great summer planned for uh, this little podcast here. But but forgive us if we go just a little long this week because we won't be on the air next week. Right. Um, but there are other exciting things happening in the world of Star Wars, including Forces of Destiny. Forces of Destiny, which was revealed, the sort of multimedia um, I don't know, really know what to call it, Jim, a campaign almost. Um, but it's all being uh, headlined by a, a series of shorts. These are, are two to three minute uh, episodes. Um, and, oh, hold on. Actually, they, they were in the, uh, excuse me, they were talking about this being reminiscent of the Clone Wars. But yes, the fact is that it's going to um, launch straight to YouTube. And then there will be, at some point, this shows up on Disney XD. I don't know what's going on. Set me straight. What is going on with All this right. thing? What I think is going on here is on July 3rd, yeah, uh, Disney XD will be launching a series of shorts featuring characters like Princess Leia, Ahsoka Tano, uh, Sabine, uh, Jyn Erso. There's going to be a, a number of them released on that day. Then there will be a TV special that puts a bunch of shorts together. I believe they're going to be new ones. And uh, that'll be on Disney XD at some point in the future. But for oh, I got now, the schedule here. I got the schedule here. So starting July 3rd. At YouTube.com slash Disney, the shorts will appear. There will be a new one each day online at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And then that will culminate in their broadcast debut on Disney Channel Sunday, July 9th. Oh, I see. So, so we'll just get a, a early bird look at it online, and then it'll be on TV. There the you same go. thing. There um, you go. And but, I say multimedia because there's going to be books. There's going to be... 
um, apparel. There's going to be action figures and all kinds of things as part of this. And those will all be released on August 1st at retail. So Forces of Destiny. And Jim, there was a, a sneak peek that was posted. Did you watch that? I did. I did. Shall we review? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. So oh, you haven't? Okay. You want on. me to just go ahead and, 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 and do it right here on the fly? Yeah, I'd like that. Hold on one second, though. I just want to pull it up on my screen here so I could watch along with you. All right, here we go. All right. It looks like uh, Jen, or excuse me, uh, Ray on the uh, desert of uh, Jack. How did I find you? I'm just lucky, I guess. Who threw that? I suggest you pick on someone your own size. The data tape mm-hmm. of Imperial base locations. Thank princess you, Leia. Samin. I mean, Princess. I mean, Leia. Stormtroopers. The choices we make. The actions we take. Mas Kanata narrating this thing. Shape us into forces of destiny. There you go. July 3rd on YouTube.com slash Disney. This is, uh, it, it feels as though that maybe Maz Kanata is going to be sort of our, uh, sort of the, the glue that holds this whole thing together, that she's the, the, the narrator of this, I don't know, maybe it's just the, the, the Ray-centric episodes, but it feels like she's, she's got some voiceover during what is clearly uh, Ahsoka's episode. So this could be very interesting to see the way this um, pans out. Now, that, as I said just a moment ago, I was getting confused here because they were talking in this story about the Clone Wars, or excuse me, not the Clone Wars, Clone Wars miniseries that was on Cartoon Network back in 2003. And those were also brief two to three minute shorts that then expanded into a 15 minute format. Put it all together. I think you get uh, about an hour, an hour's worth of, of material when you watch it all together. Um I feel, boy, you know, maybe this is just the sort of the greedy Star Wars fan in me, but I, I remember loving the Gendy s- series, Clone Wars, but also feeling a little, uh, uh, wanting more, right? You know, two, three minutes, it's not a lot of time, um, but it does seem to be, a in the, in the case of Forces of Destiny, Jim, that they're looking to fill in some gaps and actually create some meaningful, um, you know, quick certainly, but, uh, you know, meaningful stories. Yeah, it looks like there could be some additions to can in here. There's an image here in this trailer that I want to discuss. Um, but first I want to talk about some of my initial impressions. Number one, I love the animation style. I love the 2D. I, mm-hmm. uh, it, it does make me think of the uh, Gendy Tarkovsky Clone Wars micro-series. Um, but there is the cynic in me who saw this the first time and thought, oh, my God, this is a commercial to sell the dollies. 
I want it to yeah. be more substantial than that, and I think it will be because I know that Dave Filoni has done some work on it. Jennifer Murrow, who is uh, apparently running the show, uh, she she seems like uh, she has a great resume and certainly knows her stuff. So I don't think this is something as throwaway as a commercial for for dollies. But I mean, but it is a commercial for dollies um, in a way. I mean, it, it all is, you know, a lot of people always would blame George Lucas. Uh, hey, that whole job of the hut sequence was uh, made to sell action figures, you know, and who knows if George would ever disagree with that. But let's talk about maybe some really solid and substantial additions to canon and the overall mythology that could happen with the show. Uh, things that jump out to me immediately, uh, the fact you see Leia and Sabine together. So that's um, a connection between the original trilogy and mm. uh, Rebels. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. The, the most striking image, and it goes by very quickly, um, and it's during the Maz Kanata voiceover, you see a twisted, gnarly tree that harkens to the tree we may be seeing in The Last Jedi. We've seen shots from the set featuring this big, gnarly tree. We think Luke might be in a tree when he says uh, in the trailer that the Jedi must end. Um, those, those books that are in the... They could be in the tree cave there. So what's up with the, the gnarly tree? We've seen this this tree come back in the the forest tree the forest tree um Mm -hmm. remember the uh that mini series on marvel comics it was called shattered empire Mm -hmm. and it ended with this they had this little sapling that they had to protect or something i couldn't you know it it had a significance and now you there's a shot here from forces of destiny that features this big gnarly tree and who's standing in front of it anakin skywalker and yoda so I think this will expand our knowledge of what this, all this tree business is all about. It's Arbor Day in the Star Wars universe, apparently. (laughs) Everyone's hanging out at the Arboretum. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there is, uh, if you look hard enough online, folks, you will find a story. um, I believe it's on YouTube that claims to have seen parts of the forthcoming they don't necessarily call it a trailer. They call it a sizzle reel, which we're familiar with that. This is the Last Jedi sizzle reel that is rumored to be make its debut at uh, the D23 conference later in July. And if they can wait that long, with all the bad PR, I'd be putting that trailer out like <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Here's a little free advice. Uh, no charge. Put that trailer out now. No one will remember Lord and Miller as soon as it's over. But uh, one of the shots that's described in this, whether it's a trailer, whether it's a sizzle reel, is uh, more uh, a, a, a close-up of this forest tree that you only get a glimpse of in the uh, teaser trailer that's on uh, Octo. Octo. There's, as Jin is uh, – Jin, sorry. Ray. <laughs> See, they're, my, they're coming out with mono, the movies too fast. They're just coming out with them too damn fast. My monosyllabic female leads <laughs> confused. Ray and her training there. Um, but, uh, yeah, there is an, uh, an interview at Den of Geek uh, with um, uh, with Murrow um, about 
Forces of Destiny, so you can go there for more information. Of course, we'll be uh, watching and uh, bringing you our thoughts about that as uh, as it unfolds. Jennifer Murrow, who's uh, actually worked on such shows as Justice League Action, Lego DC Superhero Girls, and the upcoming Spider-Man animated series. So uh, certainly no slouch when it comes to the world of animation. Well... Before we get uh, going into the cantina, we, we've, we've got one more story. You're just going to love it. Like we said, you just you, – I'm, I'm glad you stayed for it because it's just too good to be true. It's unthinkable. All right. Just moments ago, we had a, a TMZ reporter ambush uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger to get his take on the uh, Han Solo film shakeup. And now the TMZ cameras and microphones turn to the maker himself, George Lucas. <laughs> As uh, I don't know what George is doing. Uh, George is in Beverly Hills. Um I, Jim, it's hard to tell from the clip if he's where he's going because uh, he always looks the same. He's, yeah. You know, <laughs> the same George shirt. could be going to a black tie event wearing his, uh, you know, his uh, uh, trademark flannels and jeans and sneakers. All right. This is let me let me try to set the stage here right. for you. Okay. I believe George is in Beverly Hills because this week the L.A. City Council announced that they unanimously support the construction of the Lucas Museum in L.A. They had to actually make it official. Okay? So I've been mm-hmm. down this road before. I mean, of course, the Chicago <laughs> City Council uh, also uh, uh, voted to approve the building of the Lucas Museum in Chicago. And then it became state a part of state law. There was a legislature passed that opened the door for both the Obama Library and the Lucas Museum. But then it was a small and corrupt special <laughs> interest group posing as environmentalists who um, used their lawyers to discourage George Lucas from attempting to build the museum here in Chicago. And they, uh, they uh, blocked construction of the uh, museum, and uh, that forced George's hand and so he had to move to California, back to California. So he's out there in Beverly Hills uh, because that uh, big announcement was made this week. And uh, it looks like he's probably, looks like he's by a dumpster. It could be a Portageon behind him. Um, I don't I know. Think he's entering the back door of some place. It could be, or he just came out. He's with a pretty tall bodyguard. You know, and, and George Lucas doesn't always travel with bodyguards, but in this case, he does have one. George has been out and about in Southern California this week. So here's George. He, he, he's somewhere, probably in an alley somewhere, trying to get in and out, in or out of the back door of whatever establishment. And all these autograph hounds surround him. And, and of course, then TMZ is there. And they stage their ambush interview, and they use it as an opportunity to talk to George about a number of things, including Ron Howard and uh, Mark Hamill. But but George decides to, 
George decides to have a little uh, back and forth with some of the autograph hounds here. So that's what makes this outrageous and unthinkable. Yes, it's George Lucas versus the autograph hounds. How you doing, Mr. Lucas? Hey, Mr. Lucas. Mr. Lucas, how do you think Ron Howard will do directing the Han Solo movie, sir? I think he'll be great. That's awesome. Any suggestions for him? Nope. Not my job. Lucas. Mr. Lucas, no, I've how, already done how do you feel about the uh, the LA Count City Council votes tomorrow? You get, got good feelings about it? Sure. Well, if we get it, it'll be great. Anything to say to them to uh, sway their votes? To who? To the LA City Council people to sway their votes in your direction? Uh, there's nothing I can do. They're, I think they've already made their decision. They're either gonna, no, I'm not going to keep doing that, guys. You know, this is $200 a signature, so why don't you just go out and get a job? There you go, Mr. Lucas. $200 a signature. Yeah, these people are here to make money. They're not here. They're not fans. They don't care. They just want to make money. They just want to put on eBay. That's it. I just signed it. He just got $1,000 worth of stuff. He won. He's a very generous man. Mr. Lucas, what do you think about Mark Hamill finally getting his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? I think that's fine. That's your thing. Somebody's got this. Mine, mine, mine. Thank you, George. Thank you so much, George. <laughs> so what happened there? The TMZ guy is asking George these questions. And George is just signing nonstop. You know, people are. Yeah. And then he goes, no, I'm done. He goes, he, I think he says, I'm done with that guy. And then he, he keeps, but he keeps signing and he's answering these questions from TMZ. And he's just, you can see on his face, he's getting more and more irritated with the autograph hounds. Right. But he's not even looking at what he's signing. He's got this big fat Sharpie and he's just kind of aimlessly like waving it as people put stuff underneath the Sharpie. <laughs> $200 for you, $200 for you. And so he scolds the autograph hounds and said, you know, they're not even fans. They just they they just want the money. This is worth two hundred dollars. His signature, according to George, is worth two hundred bucks a piece. <laughs> and of course, his advice to these guys: get a job. There you go. <laughs> get a job. But he doesn't understand that is their job. And, you know, and and also, why should George have all the money? But no, no, no. I'm kidding. But it's funny because he keeps signing the bodyguards there, and he's like, "These people bothering you, George." Yeah, I just can't stand them. They're selling it for two hundred, and he keeps signing. Yeah, right. Well, George, I, and, I, I could tell he's, you, he's, he's he's accounting for it. Yeah, there's a thousand. There's another thousand. This guy right here has a thousand. You want two more, pal? Here you go. What else you got? You know, he just doesn't stop. If he's so mad, why does he keep signing? Maybe it's because the TMZ guys are there, and he just didn't know what to do. But he seemed fed up with the TMZ guys, too. Uh, George, are uh, you happy that Mark Hamill's getting a star? That's fine. He doesn't even care. He doesn't care. A star on the Walk of Fame? In- Bunch of Hollywood bull crap. Yeah, you think George cares about that? Hell no. But he knows how much his autograph is worth because he's uh, he's on eBay checking it out. Yeah. Melody, I don't- how do I get on the eBay? How- <laughs> I don't remember my password here. Hold on. His bodyguard's just like, well, Mr. Lucas, I can take you right to your car right here. These autograph hounds are the worst, and he keeps signing. He's still signing. Get a job. 
Oh, you know, it, it wasn't long ago that, uh, you know, the poor Star Trek fans out there had to deal with uh, William Shatner telling them all to get a life. Now we Star Wars fans have to hear George ask us to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought we would uh, we would pay tribute to this. Now uh, we're calling it uh, indelible moment in Star Wars history with it. A song that we know is near and dear to George's heart. I believe it might have even been an American graffiti, but somebody who loves classic 50s rock and roll. Thank you, George Lucas. Now we all know. Get a job. 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 Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's George Lucas in the silhouettes with Get a Job. <laughs> I love that. You're hearing it on the X. <laughs> You know it, you love it. From Tops comes the digital card collecting app, Star Wars Card Trader. Yes, collect and trade over 1,000 officially licensed Star Wars digital cards. All of your favorite characters, vehicles, and locations from the Star Wars universe are here, including replicas of those amazing and iconic original 1977 Top Star Wars trading cards to futuristic all-new cards with exciting digital twists. And of course, you can find exclusive content from the all-time U.S. box office champ, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Download it today in the App Store or in Google Play. And of course, we're using the Star Wars Card Trader app here at Rebel Force Radio. You can always trade with us here 24-7, 365 days a year. Just search username Rebel Force Radio and do it all from the comfort of your mobile device. It's the Tops Star Wars Card Trader app. These are the cards you're looking for. Guys, all right. Well, we should do it. I'm thirsty. Let's get into the cantina with Dr. David West Reynolds. Star Wars, Star Wars Cantina. Where are you going, Master? For a drink. Sorry about the mess. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. <laughs> All right, we've had many guests in the cantina, but how appropriate is it to have the man that rediscovered where the cantina was, the home planet of the cantina, Dr. David West Reynolds. He's here with us right now. Dr. Reynolds, great to have you with us. Thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. So you have been known to Star Wars fans for a, a, good, a good while, certainly since the, uh, the mid-'90s. Uh, tell us about your journey, how you went from... Uh, going out to Tunisia, actually before it was the thing to do. You were really uh, a, a pioneer of sorts. Were you the first one to actually rediscover these locations since they were used in the filming of uh, Episode Four in 1977? Yes, in fact, that was me. So when I got there, the sites were exactly as they were when the crew left them 20 years earlier. Well, they didn't clean, up, up. They didn't nope. clean up after themselves? No, it was interesting to talk up to the, the two different crews. So 
Robert Watts was production manager on Star Wars and also on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he said, oh, yeah, Tunisia really got its act together in the years between when we filmed Star Wars and Raiders, because in Star Wars, we just left everything everywhere and nobody cared because it was the middle of the Sahara. Mm. But uh, when they built the sets for Raiders, they had to, to clean up after themselves and bulldoze everything. So the Star Wars stuff really was just left in place and nobody cared. So that's why there was so much there left for me to find. How did you discover that those sites were lost to history, that the records weren't kept? And uh, back in 1977, when George Lucas and his crew were out there, they just uh, ditched the place and nobody even really kept track of where they were. So, I mean, the places to me that would ob- be the obvious mysteries would be the exterior of the Lars Homestead and uh, certain places uh, within Moss Eisley. However, the interior of the, uh, of the homestead was, was a hotel, and uh, th- there obviously must have been some sort of reference to that hotel. Yes, indeed. And so the hotel was the one hard target that I knew we would find. And there was a German fan named Frank Bitterhoff who visited the hotel before I went there. So the sites that I found were all the other unknown ones. The, the hotel had been mentioned in uh, the Star Wars album and a few other publications. So that was the Hotel City Driss in the city of Matmada. And uh, that, that was featured in the Making of Star Wars documentary that uh, aired in 1977. So that was one that, that we knew we were going to find that. And the question there was just going to be how much of it was left. You know, what was it still recognizable as Luke's home? And I really wondered, would the mural still be there on the dining room ceiling? And I was really psyched that that was, that was still there untouched. And uh, that was all the product of the Star Wars crew. They just liked it at the hotel. So they left all the stuff there. But all the other sites were completely unknown. And so that's where I had to bring in archaeology training. Now, was that sort of, did you use that as sort of a, a, a nucleus, a place where you could fan out from there to, to determine, you know, to find the other locations? Was there any relevance to that particular location where the other ones ended up being? No, not at all. Um, so Matmata is, is a couple hundred miles in from the coast in the highlands. But the other sites are scattered entirely across Tunisia from an island offshore all the way to the Algerian border. And uh, so there's like half a dozen different sites, and they're, they're not close to one another. So it was, uh, it was a real treasure hunt. Well, this, and, is, this is needle but, in a haystack stuff. I mean, what, how did you go about trying to find the, these, the more remote locations? It was a needle in a haystack. And I, I learned the meaning of that phrase when I, I first tried this. Actually, it was in 1991. I was doing um, archaeology, or no, it was 1990, I'm sorry. Um, 99-91 was the Gulf War. Um, we weren't working there then. Um, in 1990, I was working in Tunisia on an archaeology project. We were digging up a Roman settlement on the coast. And I had a few days at the end of the project, and I thought, uh, well, here I am in Tunisia. Let's see if, if I can track down any of these Star Wars locations. So I, I got to Matmata, no problem, but uh, they were doing renovations on the crater that was, was uh, Lalar's homestead, so I couldn't get in to see that. And I, I, I did a tour of the entire country trying to follow what I thought would be you know, good clues to, okay, let's go take a look at the salt flat and see if you can find Luke's home. And then you find out, holy cow, the salt flat is as big as some New England state's. <laughs> you, you can't just say, have you seen a foot high crater anywhere around here? And, you know, <laughs> hundreds. It, it's 
a hundred miles to the horizon, right? <laughs> and then you say, well, I'm looking for one sand dune in the Sahara. And, you know, it's like, well, hey, take your choice. We've got 10,000 dunes here, kid. So um, it was a total disaster. Um, I, I got taken into an oasis by a very friendly Tunisian gentleman um, who had ulterior motives. Oh, no. Um, oh, yes, we are like a brother. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I don't like, I don't like the sound of this at all. <laughs> out in the middle of the desert. This, oh, this like, sounds... my sleeping? oh, the hammock is big enough for both of us. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> yeah, oh. So, that's well, the kind of know. stuff they don't talk about archaeology school, but yeah, that's what's yeah. out there in the field. So the next morning, and, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it's all for Star Wars. Yeah, and the poor guy, his feelings were really hurt that I pulled the knife. You know, and it's like oh. nothing personal, dude, but. That's not what's going to happen. And oh. so, wow. But uh, that was nothing compared to I, I uh, wanted to find the Gentleman Waste Canyon, the famous Star Wars Canyon. Mm-hmm. And I did my research, and I, I found that the, the most likely canyon that the crew would have had access to is at this, this mining place called Metlaoui, which is way the hell out in the middle of nowhere, but that's where it had to be. And I get out there, and uh, some, some local young man goes out with me, and... Um, I'm looking, I'm just hiking all day long. I go out the next day, I hike all day long. I'm looking for canyons that look like they might have once had Ben Kenobi in them, and it's a total goose chase. And on the second day, this guy's been trying to figure out what I'm doing here. And we have this conversation that eventually gets around to him saying, so if I killed you here, would anybody ever know where you were? And I said, "Um, I'm not sure. Why do you ask? And he's like, well, you know, you must have a lot more money than I do for you to come here because I could never travel to your country. And uh, I think I've been watching you for the last day, and I don't think anybody else knows where you are. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, you know, that's they are that... not to be traveled lightly. Uh, just know? so you know, I mean. <laughs> you know, that's that good old-fashioned uh, Tunisia hospitality, though. You know, I mean, it's, that's uh, they're known for that. Whoa. You'd think I'd remember the movie but uh yeah. no i was so that first trip was not successful wow. at all but now, that was good now now dr reynolds um you you were there uh as a was this as a as a student uh back in 1990 on another yeah, so you, i'm getting my, you, you were on it this yeah, was another gig my, so were you so you did this on your free time then right so you were you were there for one reason and then we're kind of going and uh, looking for these Star Wars locations on your on your off hours, I'm guessing. Yeah, we we had lived on the coast for a few months, and um, I was finally free. We, we worked all the time, um, and so I only had about a week at the end of that trip, and so I just hit the, the sites that I thought that I had the best chance of finding, and it was a, a total loss, ex- except for uh, we are like a brother. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. What an icebreaker that. Well, they don't have ice in the desert, so uh, they don't know really how to break the ice. Yeah, but um, I think they call that so t- was... Tunisian tummy sticks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Um, so w- when did you break through? When, when did you realize that, hey, uh, I-, I might actually be on the path to discovering where these actual film sites are? Right. So uh, in 93, I'm working in Egypt. So I live in Egypt that year in the summer. And we were tracking down Roman caravan routes between the Nile River and the Red Sea across the eastern desert, where there's just nothing. And we could find traces of where the Romans camped. 
okay? Mm. Like where the caravans had stopped and camped 2,000 years ago. Mm. And one of the things that really struck me was we found this girl's rag doll. It was a Roman girl's rag doll, and she had dropped it. And the desert preserved it for 2,000 years. I mean, the thing looked like somebody left it there last month. Wow. And it was a Roman rag doll. I mean, and that's what got me thinking. There must be, you know, I, 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 there's more something to look for in Tunisia than just the landscapes. There might actually be props left over. And that got me to thinking, well, I, I want to try this again. Now that I've learned more about archaeology and about how you, you approach, like, when we were looking for these Roman caravan routes, we didn't just drive out into the eastern desert and, you know, take a zigzag route and hope we ran into something. I mean, there's a lot of everything in archaeology about searching for that is you're, you're trying to cut down your search territory, narrow it down in every way possible, and then reduce it to a manageable amount of territory that you've actually got to search. So you use geography, you use the landforms in the background, you use every clue you can. And so... I started the whole project over and and took a, a very serious archaeological approach the second time so that when I go to Tunisia in May of 95, I'm going as a fully educated archaeologist who knows what he's doing rather than somebody looking for a needle in a haystack. So you had five and, years between the, the first attempt and the second attempt. And you so things like finding the doll they were the encouragement that you needed the light bulb went off that maybe there was something even even more there so how did you start this to narrow this search did you reach out to lucasfilm did you have to talk to more natives how did you begin narrowing it down to that manageable uh area well yeah lucasfilm was the first place that i went and and things were so different back in the pre-internet days right because you know, we, we old fellows remember how it used to be back in the old days. <laughs> and yeah. you, could, you could just look Lucasfilm up on the phone book because, um, you know, it, it, Joe Nutcase wasn't calling them back then. And so it, nowadays, they're, you know, they're well defended, but you couldn't just do what I did back then. But I was able to just call up the, the, the PR department and say, hey, guys, I'm an archaeologist. I'm trying to find a site. You know, what kind of information can you give me? And they hooked me straight up to the archives and the archives very kindly checked the records for me and they were the ones that told me you know movie productions don't typically keep those kinds of records because nobody's planning on coming back mm. so uh everybody got sick everybody had incredible cases of diarrhea on the star wars production nobody wanted to come back to tunisia um especially george and so <laughs> there was, there was no record oh yeah it's, it's brutal, man. I mean, we used to give the Golden Amoeba Award to the person with the worst dysentery. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's the Dubak's Revenge. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I Lucasfilm mean, was, 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 of, was of no help. So obviously you didn't give up. What The, the one thing they did was they said, look, um, we, we're really sorry we can't help you, but we can put you in touch with the production manager who scouted all those original locations. So mm. he said, we can give you his address. You can write to him. We don't know if he'll write back to you. So I wrote to this guy, Robert Watts, and uh. he was so nice. He called me immediately from the film he was shooting at the time. He was shooting in Canada someplace. And uh, he's this terrific gentleman. And so, oh, you're really going to try and go back. Oh, yeah. isn't Tunisia great? Love the food there, you know. Everybody else gets, uh, well, fun. But, you know, what, those of us who've traveled, you know, we can handle it, right? Oh, food's great. So, and he started giving me his best recollections. 
And I thought, this is going to be dynamite. I bet, Here's my roadmap. And uh, I was getting things like, oh, so you remember, remember Luke Skywalker's homestead? Yes, yes, Mr. Watts, I remember that. He said, well, I'll tell you, I was, we're driving out to that every morning. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that was on the left. <laughs> the left. <laughs> on, the, on, on the left. So, so not on the right, just pretty much on the left. Yeah, on the left. So, you know, there's a road heading out towards Algeria, I think. I mean, you know. So anyway, you know, you go find that one. And then next, and so I get to, he's, he's remembering his best, but like, this is the kind of clues I get. Yeah. <laughs> so I got, I got, and, but that's how I found that Moss Eisley was on an island. I would never have searched on an island to find Moss Eisley, but yeah. Watts sent me there. So great, because that cuts the territory down a lot. Sure. But, but the rest of it took was just microscopic analysis of the pictures. So looking at the, the way the strata bedded, so the geological strata, the layers of the rock, if, are they laid down in angle? Are they in thick layers or thin layers? And I could look at geological maps of Tunisia and see that outcroppings like that only occur in certain places. And then I start narrowing it down. I found a map of Tunisia from 1976. So then I'm using only the towns that had hotels big enough to host the film crew because they can't, they can't operate anywhere where there's not a big hotel. So that really cuts things down. So now I'm, I'm, I've got a six-hour radius from the hotels that were, were present in 1976 and only the roads that were present in 76. And I start combining that with the geography and every little trace of everything that's in the background and by that time, I had search territories that were narrowed down enough that I had a realistic shot of finding some of these things. What was the first prop you found out in the wild or set dressing? Or I know for a fact you found the door to the cantina because it's, it's on display at Rancho Obi-Wan. Isn't that a great one? That is a that, great one. Uh, and so it all starts with the, with the top Star Wars cards, right? I mean, back with the uh, blue and red series, yes. I, I love those things because we didn't have DVDs, we didn't have VHS, and unless you were in the theater seeing the movie, your only way to interact with that was those gun cards. Yes. So I collected those things assiduously, and I, I just memorized everything in them that I could. But even in 95, those were some of my best reference. And the first thing that I found was something that I remembered from a gun card. We had driven over three quarters of this island, and it looked small on the map, but it's, it was a huge place. When you're just driving around, you're holding a gun card, and you're <laughs> driving, and you're driving. It's like, hold it this way. Nope, just palm trees. Hold it that way. Nope, more palm trees. And we drove over the entire bloody island. I mean, we were just, just getting cross-eyed. And we finally get to a point where I say, oh, my God, I think that's the window. I don't see anything else that I'm looking for, but I see this window on the blue top Star Wars cards where it said the droids are reunited. That window I recognized, and we stopped the rover, and I piled out, and that was the cantina. Wow. That was the cantina dome, and everything around it had changed so much it was unrecognizable. But uh, that's my search technique ended up focusing on little details like that because so much change had occurred. And you couldn't memorize everything in an entire landscape or even in a set of architecture. But I'd pick out distinctive details, and there's this one funky little window sticking on the side of the Cantina Dome. And that's what pinned Moss Eisley. So you pull over, and uh, you, you, you verify that it's what you're seeing on the trading card. So what then? You just start talking to random people who are out on the street or people who might be out uh, working or whatever and to, to see if anyone was around 
back when the production was in full swing, right? Exactly. And so I've got my movie camera because um, we were recording the whole thing on SVHS. And I start asking the locals to you know, I'm proud of my French back then, which was, was adequate. And I'm saying, you know, also, you know, we're, we're looking for the Moss Eisley Plaza, right? The middle of the spaceport where the cantinas over here, the stormtroopers were over there and the droids would have been raiding right about here. Is, can you, can you direct me to any of this stuff? And I get these blank looks. Sure. I thought, well, that's funny. The French didn't work and no, it worked. They just thought, what, this guy is really messed up. And, uh, <laughs> they, they did not understand anything that what I was saying. And then I see in the, in the junk pile behind the cantina, there is the door frame that Luke Skywalker walks through to go into the cantina. And I'm just, I'm so psyched. I'm really happy. I can't believe it. It's the entire door frame. It's not just a piece. And I heard them over saying, what does he want? That's the oldest piece of junk in the village. Why does he want that? <laughs> wow. And uh, so then the owner of the cantina, which was a bakery at the time, uh, of the, or this will be a sort of free translation, but he ends up saying more or less, so, kid, you like uh, old garbage, do you? And I more or less have to say, yeah, yeah, old plastic garbage that looks like this. Yeah, I'm pretty into that. Well, let me show you my chicken coop then. You're going to love that. And he shows me, he shows me, and there's the cantina door and this door is chicken coop. And, and the little domes that were on top of the cantina, the goats drinking out of them. Oh my God. Wow. So were the people who lived around the locals, were they aware that star Wars was such a big, massive hit? Did, did the hype reach them out in the, in, in this Island in Tunisia or, uh, or, or were they kind of ignorant about it all? Not at all. And the, the educated folks that I dealt with in other parts of the country, when I would ask them about Star Wars, they were aware of it, but they felt kind of embarrassed for the United States that we had made it and that it was popular. And I, I didn't understand this for a while, but I finally, I, I had some pretty good friends who were finally willing to be fairly candid with me. And uh, they said, David, there is no blood. There is no blood. This is not for men. You know, a grown-up man, you should not watch this. There is no blood. Jeez. No man. Well, they want, wow. like, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or something? Is that what they're into? Like a little Friday right. the 13th or something? I said, Rambo, this movie is for a man. This movie is for a man. For, for not blood, this is only for a small child. <laughs> well, yes. But, uh... I was like, okay, yeah, I, I see what you mean. You're, you're right. I, I'm pretty embarrassed about it. And he's like, oh, well, in that case, it's okay. As long as you are embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's makes a, it okay. That's oh, the weirdest review I've ever heard of the Star Wars films. He's for <laughs> child. <laughs> no blood. It is not, there's not much blood. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah not, it's not. It's not. Other, other than, yeah, other than Walrus Man's arm, um, there isn't a whole lot of blood. That's about yeah, it. that does. That's just not enough. Yeah, that's just yeah. not enough. No, you know, no. <laughs> you know, put put a mini gun on Luke and have him blowing the heads off of stormtroopers. Now we're getting somewhere. Right, but, right, uh, right. That's for men. That's that's a show for men right there. I'm down with that. <laughs> it's it, not for men. There, there's the summary of the the uh, North African world's judgment. Of, well, you know, it's perfect that that door is on display at Ranch Obi-Wan now because Ranch Obi-Wan is a converted chicken ranch. So it kind of comes back to its roots. Everything sort of comes full circle there. The circle is now complete, if you will. I don't think, oh, I don't think the goats are drinking out of it. I, you're, you're blowing my mind here. 
that's uh, that's pretty cosmic. <laughs> this guy, so what what did it take for you to get this guy to give you the door? And I mean, were, was there a lot of negotiation going on? Uh, what, what do you, was there he reluctant to part with it? He no, he just wanted to see how much how much you can get out of a crazy American, mm. and. I end up giving him some piddly amount and uh, I end up going, I spent a lot of time in Tunisia. So like the BBC took me back and I went back as the, as a tour guide for a, a, a Star Wars customizable card game, world grand prize. And I went back for a bunch of reasons. So I heard later the stories that this guy told of this crazy man who came from the other side of the world and gave me this princely sum of like $25 for my chicken coop door. And so, I was I was legendary as the the nutcase who had wow. dropped twenty five. I'm sure everybody was showing you garbage and trash everywhere you went. Like, look at this, <laughs> look at this. That's right. How you many? Joke. That's exactly what happened. So all of the people that came after me, so all the people that followed my articles and the, the Star Wars Insider and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the people that showed up after me, um, there was like the Jawas just descending on you. We have this garbage. We have this sure. garbage. And, Oh, like, no, we only want a certain kind of garbage. You know, the, the old food we're not really so much into. And, you know, the road culture, that's really not something we're going to be paying for. But, oh, the sand creature ball, now we can talk about that. So it took a while for the Tunisians to soak in exactly what kind of garbage are these people into. But, yeah, it was much like that. David, I mean, look what you started uh, with that let me uh, turn the clock back because uh, maybe some of our younger fans aren't aware, but Back in the, the mid-90s, when Star Wars Insider magazine relaunched, uh, David, you supplied an article about your adventures going out to Tunisia and finding these shooting locations. And that article was, was just huge. It had a huge impact. And uh, people were just amazed by the work you did to discover all these shooting locations. And so then that opened the door. A lot of people started booking flights, going out there and uh, taking whatever they could grab. Um, but uh, th it was that article that definitely put you on the map. Definitely, yeah. And, and it was fascinating because what it showed you is that, well, anyone could have tried this all this time, right? But no one except Frank Bitterhoff, um, nobody even tried, so far as I know. I mean, I, I haven't heard from anybody who said, oh, yeah, I gave that a try too, but I couldn't find the damn thing because I didn't know any archaeology techniques. I've never heard that. So this is one of those things where what it took was somebody to show that this is possible and then, then everybody can go. And it's, it's this amazing opportunity. But until then, it was just not something that anybody even thought about. It wasn't something anybody dreamed about because it just it's not something you did. Nobody goes looking for that sort of thing. So it was really striking to observe how, you know, those things lay untouched for 20 years. And I published that article and then everybody's going on a vacation to Tunisia. Well, it, it definitely created a whole new uh, facet of Star Wars fandom. You know, you had the the toy collectors, you had the co you have costumers, and you now you have, you know, Star Wars archaeologists that go out there, and of course, uh, not just in Tunisia, but in locations in the United States and uh, other places where they have found these uh, these locations. Now, I, I am curious because they did go back. Um, for the prequels to uh, some of those locations. And do you think that you might have, you know, had you not come along that maybe they wouldn't have found them? Oh, I know that for a fact because I was hired by Lu Lucasfilm as their location scout. Well, there so you go. Literally, <laughs> so I, I put 
that article in the Insider, right? Little do I know that literally that same month at Skywalker Ranch, George Lucas had said to his producer, Rick McCallum, Rick, I think as much as I hated it, I think I want to go back to Tunisia for the first prequel. So I'm not going to go. You're going to go over and take a look at all the old sites because we'll need to go back to some of them and also find me some new ones. I'm going to need slave quarters. I'm going to need this, that, and the other. And Rick says, you got it. Off he goes. And he goes straight to the archives and says, hey, guys, let me have all of the records <laughs> on uh, where all the film sites were. And the archivists look at each other and say, you know, it's funny. <laughs> we kind of asked that earlier this year, and uh, there is nothing. And Rick says, like, what do you mean nothing? What do you mean nothing? You can't tell me nothing. I can't, I can't say George. I can't. I don't know where the locations are. I'm not going to say that. Tell me there's some information. And he says, I'm sure Rick's Rick really language was just a little bit more colorful, uh, knowing what we uh, do about <laughs> I have down a wee bit, a tad, yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure what audience rating we've gotten here, but yeah, it's toned down a little. Mr. McCallum is not, not colorful. And uh, so believe me, uh, after this colorful language, the archivists were plenty motivated if they could find anything. For <laughs> and no kidding, publishing said, wait a minute, didn't Rick say something about Tunisia in the midst of all that profanity? Look, here's some kid apparently gone and found all these locations. And they put it on Rick's desk. And he said, you are kidding. Yes. Get this guy on the phone. And so... I was talking to Rick McCallum, which is like, if you've met him, it's like, it's like talking to Zeus. I mean, <laughs> this guy is, is an unbelievable force of nature to talk with. And uh, it was, it was just, it was incredible. And so, how old were you when this was going down? What was I, 27, I think. Yeah. Okay. And, and obviously you never had any experience working with the film industry or movie executives of that stature. So it must've just been mind-blowing when you got the call totally i mean i'm i'm finishing my phd so when rick calls me it's december 95 the article has come out just in the previous month i think in the insider i'm finishing my phd i'm literally about to defend my phd that i've just spent five years on and rick's saying he's going to go back to tunisia in a week and i'm thinking i need to be there and he says well look all we need is a map okay so Look, I'm going to fax you a map. You put some X's on it, fax it back to us, and I just love that. Thanks so much. This is really going to save us a lot of time. Click. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, I just spent every cent of mine that I had, everything, to do this project because it was really exciting. And once I saw that it was working, I, I spent the money to stay in Tunisia as long as it took because it was incredible to me that I was finding one after another. Each one took a completely different search technique. And so I was a little proud of what I'd done, but I was completely intimidated by this incredible Rick McCallum guy. But, but I mustered up all my courage and I called him back and I said, Rick, you know, you're such an important guy. I, your time's really valuable. I, I hate to think of you getting lost out there. And yeah. I think what you, you don't need a map. You need a guide. And he said, so, that's the way it's going to be, is it? And I said, well, yeah, that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> he knew. He knew. <laughs> he knew. He knew. He said, he said, well, listen, Spunky, if you're going to go, you're going to have to get your bags packed pretty quick. We're leaving in five days. And I said, I said, Rick, I'm an archaeologist. My bags are already packed. <laughs> nice. And they sent me a ticket to Tunisia, and off we went. Wow. Beauty. Wow. And at that point, were you aware of 
exactly where the Lars homestead was because that is probably the most important exterior shot that was carried over into the prequels. So that was the real, yeah. that was the real, the, the gold mine for them was knowing exactly where that site was. Yep. Because there's a characteristic set of ripples on the horizon that you can see from starting in new hope. And you see it every time elsewhere, it appears there's no other place on the salt flat that has that exact same look. And you're seeing those ripples because there's a slight rise in the ground um, several miles away from the homestead. And it gives a distinct look to that place. So someplace else wouldn't have done. But uh, yeah, when, when, uh, when Rick hired me to do that, he knew that I had the exact coordinates of every single one of the filming locations. I had tracked down everything. You had so them all I at that handle- point. So there was, there was, and, and you know, everyone knows that in, in, in film, obviously time is money. And so you probably saved them a lot of money by, you know, there was no wasted time, in other words, right? I mean, you took them right to where the front door of every location. Yes. And, and, and at first, uh, there were Rick and, and two guys working with him, David Brown and uh, production designer Gavin Bouquet. None of them believed that I was going to lead them to the exact spot. They were like, okay, well, he's found similar locations, but that's all we need. You know, it'll do. <laughs> and I kept saying, no, I can take you to the exact spot. And he kept patting me on the back and saying, I know, I know, you know, we're all in the business. I know it's just bullshit. <laughs> and I said, no, really. and I could take it. And so it was all this friendly, you know, we know you're kidding. You know, you don't have to say that anymore. And they wouldn't believe me until I took them to the sand dunes. And I said, see, this card right here is three, three POs desert trek. I'm taking it to that spot. And Gavin Bouquet said, David, you mean you're taking us to a similar spot? You're not going to take us to the exact sand dune. <laughs> and David Brown said, Christ almighty, what is that? And they looked ahead and there were all of the sandworm bones that I'd left in a line. Wow. And wow. Rick just looked at and said one word that was pure profanity. <laughs> but, uh, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> And that was the. uh, I rose greatly in estimation. So it was was a battlefield promotion through strict profanity. So that's where the crate dragon was located, and the bones of that. Was it complete with the skull and everything? No, and I knew I knew I wouldn't find the skull. How did I know? Because Robert Watts said, "Uh, "You." I said, "Now, do you really? You guys left the bones and everything behind?" Said, "Well, not everything. You're not going to find the skull. No." No, because I've got that over my mantelpiece. It's a trophy, you know. People never <laughs> No kidding. Wow. I wonder if there's any photos of that available online. I'd love to see it. I would too. He's just the best. But uh, so that was the only thing that was was taken away. The rest of it was still there, and wow. it was just blown on. So Rick first was astonished that I could literally take them to the exact site, and that you know this proved to be the case with everything else I showed him. But he was also, he said, what are these all still doing here? Why didn't you take them away? And I had to explain that I had this incredibly naive point of view where I felt, when, when I found that stuff, like the Lars Homestead and the Bones in the Sand, more than, more than any of the other sites, I, just, I was awestruck. I mean, I felt like this is impossible. This, this is a needle in a haystack. This can't have lasted 20 years, and I found it. It, it, it felt so extraordinary that I thought I, if somebody else ever did this much work, cause I wasn't anticipating writing an article. Right. I thought if some, if the next guy goes to all the work that I went through, which was killer 
and he traced his path all the way here. I thought, I don't want him to come and find a hole in the sand. I want him to see these bones like I did. Mm. And I didn't come after the treasure, you know? I came after, I want to be on Tatooine. Yeah. I didn't come just, like, just so I can take something home and have something in my display case. I wanted to, to be in those Star Wars cards like Luke Skywalker was. That's what I wanted. And I was living that. And oh. the, 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 the guy who went with me was a paleontologist, Michael J. Ryan. And he said, you're going to what? And I said, well, I don't need to take these home, Michael. Let's leave them here. And he said, you're, you're insane. You know, we can pay for the whole trip with these. And I said, well, I'm just picturing the next guy. And, of course, that next guy was completely fictional. <laughs> it was never going to happen. As soon as I published the article, everybody in their own earth just, you know, descended on the place and took everything instantly. Mm-hmm. But I had this, this – I, I couldn't be the one to do that. I couldn't do that because – it was so profoundly amazing for me that I thought if there's any chance that somebody else could have this experience, I'm not going to take that away from them. Can you tell us what it was like when you found the Lars homestead and you found yourself standing in that historic shooting location? Tell us what you were feeling and tell us what you saw. What was still intact? So when, when, when I found the Lars homestead, all that we saw on the horizon was, was this tiny little ripple. And we had been searching every tiny little dirt track that led off the main highway. But I cut the search territory in half. How was that? Because do I have to search on the right? No. <laughs> on the left. Of course, that was actually good advice. So it really cut the search territory down. But we were searching every road. It took us days. to we, We'd follow every dirt track to its end and then come back. So we'd done several days of this. And we see this little ripple. And I say, that's it. That's, that's it. And uh, Michael's saying this, how do you know? It's just a little ripple. It could be anything. And I said, no, that's, that's Luke's crater. And we walked out to it. And so all the, the, there are two craters. There's the main one that Luke stands on at the sunset. Then there's the hangar crater where he garages his skyhopper. And then there was the mark in the ground where the roof of the garage had been. And then there was the wreckage of the little domed entrance. So, that's that's what there were, but I finally got to see how exactly all these things related to each other. The crater ring looked much like it had when they broke production. They took away all of the set dressing because all of those pieces of set dressing show up again later in Moss Eisley. The Star Wars was incredibly economical in how they used their set decor. So all of those evaporators, all of the uh, waste processors that the Lucasfilm calls them fusion generators, but they were meant to be waste processors, little square module things. Um, the holes were still square in the crater where the ring, where they had taken those out. And I, I could hardly speak when I was standing at the edge of this crater because I could see what, what Luke was seeing, you know, I could look mm-hmm. this way and that's where the entrance was. And I look over there and I know my skyhopper's in there <laughs> and that garage, you know, I'm going to fix the droids down there and the sand crawler would have been right here. And honestly, it, I remember vividly, it felt like being on the moon. It felt like those pictures where you see the astronaut and you know that guy is just thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. And, and it was so expensive. It was something like a million dollars a minute for the guys to be on the moon. And they were intensely conscious of this. Because I wrote a book later about the Apollo mission, so I talked to the astronauts, so I know. They were really conscious of how much money was being spent. So they were really trying hard to do everything right. And I felt the same way. I only spent my you know, piddling little fortune, but... It was all I had, and I'd risked everything on something that could have been a total flop, but it was working. 
And here I was at this crater site, which was the most unfindable of all of them. And I was here and it felt like being on the moon. It was just unreal and surreal and fantastic. I don't know if that brings it across. Oh, it does. It does. I, 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 I actually have goosebumps hearing you talk like this. But I, I got to ask you, uh, you mentioned the dome itself uh, had seen a bit of uh, decay. How much of it was actually intact? Oh, the dome is gone. You oh, see it's gone. the dome outside the cantina. So they took that back and made it part of the Moss Eisley set. So Ben oh. Kenobi walked past that. You see the inside of that dome. The concentric rings are the inside of that dome structure. Oh, wow. And then uh, it was rebuilt for episode two. And uh, since then, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that our friend Mark Dermel out in Belgium. And so he's uh, he had been taking people out there on tours of these locations. And he actually went out there with a construction crew and reinforced that plaster dome. And they put up a plaque and they added some... uh, little uh, greeblies to the door and whatnot and uh, and uh, made it a place where people can go for years to come. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's really neat. I'm glad have, that was done. Have you ever thought about going back? Well, I, when, when, uh, when the time's right, it'll happen. I, I went, I traveled there so many times in the nineties um, that, that I, I ended up getting to see every single bit that I wanted to, because I went back half a dozen times. And so I, by the end of it, you know, I, it was so much part of my memory that, that I'd achieved everything I wanted out of the Tatooine experience. And I was actually not sure that I wanted to go back and overlay that with prequel experiences, because what I saw was the Tatooine that I had seen in New Hope. And once it became the Tatooine in other movies, that was a whole different experience. So I've, I've been sort of on the fence about whether I wanted to go back since then. Yeah, you want to keep it pure. So I get it. I get it. And and what was great was while you were out there, you guys were shooting video the whole time. So tell us what you want to do with all that footage. So I'm, I'm being the archaeologist. I'm, I'm finding this stuff and putting the clues together. And my colleague, who's now the uh, head of vertebrate paleontology at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Hey, Cleveland. Um, he's actually, yeah. Oh yeah, man. Hey. He's the world specialist in ceratopsian dinosaurs. And, uh, you should have seen his face when we find the sand creature bones. He's like, this is, you don't understand, Dave. This is, this is my first sauropod discovery, and, and it's plastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a great picture on your Facebook page of you by the, uh, the uh, crate dragon bones. Uh, what a moment. Right. So that's our trophy shot, yeah. Do you get any complaints from activists that are upset that you killed a crate dragon? When you pose with the Not trophy, yet, but no? I'm sure it's only a matter of time. <laughs> you know, you're, you're promoting outdated paradigms, and uh, it's so chauvinist. And, uh, it's very overnight. You're like that dinosaur you're posing with. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so you have you have the uh, the colleague that is uh, the Cleveland-based colleague, and he's he's shooting video for you. Is that right? Yes. So he's and. I was making it up as I went. Like my hero was David Attenborough, who I don't know if you remember him, but he was this, yes. he was this British documentarian. And what we have here is an extraordinary example of a remarkable starfish. And this starfish <laughs> is actually going to communicate with the great white shark. Oh, no, he's actually not. Oh, well, <laughs> now it moved on. Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. So, I love Life of Birds, all those great documentaries he did. 
so you know, and so he was my hero, and I, I naively imagined that he, well. To shoot these things, that means you just show up there, make friends with the animals, and then turn and look at the camera and start talking. So <laughs> I was just pulling this documentary out of my hat. And Michael would turn on the camera, and off we went. But the funny thing was that it worked. <laughs> it actually worked. So we got some pretty cool footage of all of this stuff. It's on, on SVHS, which was the best we could get at the time. And this, so this is when, in Matmata, the, the, the plastic decor pieces that, they, that uh, John Barry had designed and they stuck on the edges of the stairs, this stuff is still in place and visible. Like now that's been chipped away and redone for the, for the prequels. But what I saw was just like the Star Wars crew left it. Wow. And when I find those bones in the sand, there's no footprints. You know, nobody's been there for 20 years. And this is the stuff we got on film. That's amazing. Incredible. So we... It, uh, I wanted to make a documentary of it way back in the day, but uh, Rick very kindly said, you know, look, it's, it's, it's fun, it's good stuff, but for it to be a Lucasfilm documentary, it would have to be 35 millimeter film and so on, which was a very reasonable thing to point out. And so I let it, let it, let it lie fallow, and, and I just enjoyed the fact that I got to, to do the article and talk about it. But 20 years later, I, I, it's like, well, I can do this now, and, you know, as long as as long as I was working for Lucasfilm, it would have had to have been a, an official Lucasfilm thing because I, I end up getting hired to work at Skywalker Ranch shortly after that location scout gig because I, Rick and I got along really well. And he said, he said, you should come back to Skywalker Ranch with us. And I say, yeah, I'm an archaeologist. Rick, what do you need an archaeologist for at Skywalker Ranch? And he said, it doesn't matter. We'll think of something. And they did. <laughs> Wow. I love that's how you get a job there. You just got to be, you got they got to like you and they'll find something for you to do. It really was like a commune. It really was. It, it, well, he, he, he said something like, look, we're, we're, we need people that can get things done and uh, you get things done. Yeah. And, you know, you did the impossible thing and then you presented it professionally to us. You saved us a lot of time. You, you understood our agenda. You weren't trying to, to make it your agenda. That's what we need, people that can support the, the projects we're trying to do and get them done. And so we, we talked a good bit, and I was interested in communications, and I was interested in writing. And, you know, so I, I went through the whole standard process to make sure that I'd be useful to the team. But, um, you know, I immediately start, start cranking out best-selling books. And so it was, it was clearly a match that worked well for everybody. Wow. Well, I love the books you wrote during the prequel era, the, the visual dictionary. And weren't you one of the first, if not the first, editors of starwars.com yes i I think technically there was somebody before me but it was a it was a derelict site when they they asked me to take it over and nobody was looking at it and uh i took it over and bring pretty quick we had one of the world's top hundred websites while i ran that thing wow wow that's and that was you know in those days of the internet when it was just still pretty much a wasteland and there wasn't really a template for how to create a successful website at that time it was a lot of uh, trial and error, I think. It surely was. And, but it was exciting because I could try out all my communications theories and then watch how millions of people reacted to everything I did. If I changed the title or if I broke this paragraph into two paragraphs or, or instead of writing this story, I broke it into four installments. You know, I, all these things are things that people know now about how to, how to engage an online audience and you know, update little bits and frequently. But we were discovering that just from zero. And, uh, we, we built a site that I was very proud of, and it, it's, it was, I learned to, 
to reach multiple audiences. Because even then, Star Wars had kids that thought it was made for them and people my age that thought it was made for us and everything in between. And it wasn't so much a matter of reaching out to all those audiences. That's not so hard. What's tricky is doing that without offending you know, the, the 13-year-old that doesn't want to be mixed in with something that his 8-year-old brother likes, you know, ew, that's icky. And the 8-year-old doesn't want to feel talked down to by the 30-year-old. So I, I, I enjoyed all of those challenges and, and trying to, to find a voice for the site that would, that would make all of those different audiences feel welcomed and respected. David, so it, was, I, it was a great I, project. I am so fascinated by this idea of this, of this student uh, that just you know, gets his PhD. Uh, Obviously you went through many, many years of schooling and all of a sudden you find yourself working for Lucasfilm, writing books about a fictional universe. I mean, what did your colleagues think about you kind of uh, diverting in your career? Did you still keep up with archeology? span Did they think you were crazy? What was that period of your life like? Okay. Okay. Well, uh, nobody asks that, but uh, I'll tell you, um, I had to keep everything secret. So the reason Michael Ryan went with me was because he was a paleontologist, not an archaeologist. Not one of my archaeological colleagues would have understood or approved. So dinosaur hunters, they're kind of a hip bunch of guys. Like They're cool. <laughs> you can have a good time with dinosaur hunters. Archaeologists are... I'm not always the most uh, relaxed sort of person, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just not everyone, but uh, it does happen. And uh, <laughs> university, it was like it was like a Monty Python skit. I mean, oh. I literally had the professor teaching us about the Roman provinces connected by the the network of Roman roads. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> Brian, right? And we, we, we had the, you know, the, the, the provincials fearing the dreaded tramp of the Roman legions. Program, guys, seriously. But, but um, the, just the attitude was very intolerant. Yeah. They, they wanted conformity. Um, they did not want people researching certain subjects, even within classical archaeology. I was interested in classical exploration. And I was just told, no, don't research that. We don't want people in that topic right now. It's not fashionable. I'm like, what do you mean fashionable? This is really interesting stuff. We had Romans searching for the source of the Nile sent out by the Emperor Nero. We had Phoenicians circumnavigating Africa, and we've got proof. I mean, this is really cool stuff, I thought. And they just said, we don't want you working on it. So I knew they wouldn't understand. And it was actually against our departmental policy for a degree candidate to leave not only the state, but the campus in the weeks leading up to your dissertation defense. So when I sneaked off to Tunisia, I had to send faxes and and leave messages on my phone that people would get after I left to cover the fact that I wasn't there. Because if they found out, I would lose my PhD five years worth of work. And Rick knew that. And so, so, so did you? So did you rig up like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off type thing? They come to your door, and you'd. You, um, I'm sorry, I can't come sure. to the door right now. <laughs> I, seriously, I got as close to that as I could. So I had Confederates that mail messages for me, so it would be left in somebody's mailbox, and so they would say, "Oh, Reynolds was just here because he left this message in my mailbox." <laughs> Perfect. I had, I had a paper trail that would show every two days that I was somewhere on campus. Wow. And there was nobody. 
so yeah, so I rigged all of that. Seriously, I had to. And so when I came back, I had, I think, five days, and then I defended my PhD. Oh, my and Rick God. knew what was at stake. And when I made it through, and, and like once once you get to the point where they've awarded it, they can't take it back. <laughs> and and uh, Rick, Rick said, you've got to tell me when this happens. And he sent me champagne. Oh. I mean, what a great guy. Unbelievable. I mean, Rick McCallum, he was awesome, um, an incredible person to deal with. So um, I, I'd be nowhere if it weren't for him. Well, that's but awesome. I, yeah, he was the best. You've really got to be just one of, we've interviewed a lot of guests on this show, but by far one of the best storytellers I think we've ever had. True. For sure. True. Oh, Your story good. has got to be told. You got to go over to uh, Kickstarter and search for, uh, I believe it's Journey to Tatooine, um, and 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 donate to make this project happen because uh, we can't have your journey lost to history like those locations once were. And while it's all still uh, as fresh as as can be, and that footage still exists, it's it's got to be put into something that we can all put up on our shelves or download or what have you. Um, so. What's the uh, what's what's the plan here? Um, tell us about the, the Kickstarter and 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 maybe some of the incentives for people to uh, to contribute. Sure. Well, um, the first thing I have to say is that the, the spelling of Tatooine has now been changed to make sure that we don't step on any infringement toes. So <laughs> it's now spelled the Tunisian way because that's a real town in, in Tunisia. George got that name. He got a lot of names actually from Tunisia. So Moff Jerjerud comes from the Shot El Jared, which is the Tunisian name for the salt flat. Oh, there's, wow. there's all kinds of like that, which is, I just, I love how George did that because he's really observant of these kinds of things that give his fantasy the ring of reality. So, so Tatooine is not spelled the Star Wars way. It's got an A-O-U instead of two O's. So Tatooine. Hmm. Um, but that's, so it's still journey to Tatooine. So, and, uh, that journey in archeology span will probably get you there to the Kickstarter site or David West Reynolds. If you just go yes. to Kickstarter, type in David West Reynolds, you're there. Excellent. And we've got, uh, we, I wanted to make sure we had a good project before I put it on Kickstarter. So I put my own cash into this to take the footage, to the rough cut stage. And so we've got, it's almost an hour running time. And there's a different story for each of these half a dozen sites because it took different techniques to find each one. So the first one is let's crisscross the island and we're looking for architecture. Then when we're going to Matmata, it's just a question of, you know, we know we're going to find Luke's underground home, but what's going to be left? And what exactly did this place look like? Because we only saw half of it on the screen. But then when we go out to the canyons, that's a different search technique. And then we're in the salt flat and then we're in the sand dunes. So each one is a different story. And so the, the, it, it, takes, it takes the form of these individual little treasure hunts. And uh, that, that keeps everything being different along the way. So we've, I, I, I took it to the rough cut stage. I said, yeah, this is going to work. People will like this. And so all we need from the Kickstarter campaign is just the cash to finish it off. So um, it's not a case of where, you know, gee, send us some money and maybe we'll make a movie, guys. We've got the show nearly done. All we need is the completion funding. And so I can, I can promise people this is going to be fun because I re, I, I've, got a, I've got something, a story that I'm proud of, and, and I want to share it. So 
we got fun little things in the ways of rewards. We've got a little mini poster that's like if 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 this had a theatrical release, this is what it would look like. So it's a little a little bombastic and overstated because that's what you do for theatrical release. <laughs> we got uh, Rick McCallum um, asked for a set of maps. When we came back from the location scout, he said, I want to present all this to George, and you've clearly got all these notes. Would you mind putting together a little portfolio for me? And I was ready to do anything Rick McCallum commanded because he was just so great for work for. So I whipped up a set of maps, and he loved them, and, and presented those to George when he was telling about the location scout. So I'm doing enhanced versions of those. And so they're fun to look at as a Star Wars fan because it helps you appreciate how these locations fit together. But if you ever want to go to Tunisia, they're also useful. And one of the things that I got to do at Skywalker Ranch, I got, I got plenty of Skywalker Ranch stories, is I got to see the lost cut of Star Wars. Are you familiar with this oh, thing? Oh, yes, yes. It's an alternate cut uh, with uh, some different camera angles, completely different dialogue, different takes all together. Um, Boy, oh boy, that's now that's a holy grail for Star Wars fans, and very few have been able to see. So maybe we'll talk about that someday. But one of the things that fascinated me when I saw the rough cut was that they used George used the actual geography of Tunisia in connecting Alara's homestead with the Jumlin wastes. So originally, you saw Luke's land speeder passing through all of the different sections of Tunisia that lead to that real canyon. So what that means is in the Star Wars world, we know what that geography looks like. So these maps are, are partly of Tunisia, but they're also partly of, of Tatooine, which of I think is really cool. I love crossover jazz. Wow, that's so great. So we, we've got and, uh, and we've got, we got everything priced at the, at the minimum it takes just to get these out because this, uh, I, this is not a, a profit project for me. This is something that I just want to share the story. I, I do other work for profit, so... Um, we've kept all the prices as low as possible. Well, I'll tell you what, Dr. Reynolds, we want to see this uh, very much. Uh, we're targeting uh, end of the year uh, for uh, the time we can uh, possibly get this out to people. And just to make sure that everything's going good for you on Kickstarter, Rebel Force Radio has pledged $100 to uh, the Kickstarter campaign because we really want to see this. I sure appreciate that. I really do. Oh, yeah, you it's bet. Great. And you are you are more than... Well more than a third on your way with uh, still 29 days to go as we're recording this. So I think you're in, in good shape. But uh, the show will be going up and uh, listened to by thousands and thousands of Star Wars fans who are just as passionate about all of this as the three of us are, uh, if not more so in some ways. So I, I think this is a, a great audience for this project. I know they're going to do well by you. Uh, in addition to the Kickstarter, you're also on... On Facebook, uh, what are some of the other places where if folks have questions or, um, you know, want to follow your work, where are the best places for them to go? Right now, the Facebook page is the best place to check and see what uh, I'm, I'm up to currently. But uh, if you've got any questions, you can ask, you can post your questions at the Kickstarter site. And okay. uh, um, anything that's general interest, I'll be happy to, to add. There's a, an FAQ at the end of the Kickstarter page that you can check. So anything that people want to ask, I welcome the questions. Oh, fantastic. Well, Dr. Reynolds, like I said, we could sit in, uh, I, I, I could sit at, at, at your knee and listen to stories all night. This has <laughs> actually been um, totally fascinating and, uh, and so vivid the way you tell it. Um, it's just made for the screen. So 
Uh, best of luck. And <laughs> once the movie, you know, I, I'm sure that we're going to have a successful campaign, uh, but we would love to have you back once uh, the film uh, is uh, is fully in, in production and ready for release and, and, and talk about it once we've all had a chance to see it. Well, I tell you, it's it's a real privilege to get to speak to the incredibly broad audience that you have. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, and I've certainly enjoyed it myself. Thank All you right. so much, Dr. Reynolds. We really appreciate the time. All right, guys. All right. Best Take of care, luck. Sir. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. Well, he was a real nice guy. What did you say? You oh, wanted that to... guy was great. <laughs> you said you wanted to sit on his knee? <laughs> at his... No, no, sit at his knee. No, you sit at his feet. You sit on his knee. Oh yeah, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> sit at his feet. I could see, all right. I could sit at your feet all night and listen to stories. Oh, right, cut that's, that in. That's cut that wonderful. In. Yeah, cut yeah. No, not cutting nothing in. Big thanks to our guest, Dr. David West Reynolds, for joining us in the cantina. Please, we encourage you to support Dr. Reynolds' Kickstarter project. Go to kickstarter.com and search for Dr. David West Reynolds or search for Tatooine. And be sure to use the proper Tunisian spelling. It is T-A-T-A-O-U-I-N-E. Tatooine. And you'll find the page... To uh, become a backer of his documentary, this is something that just really has to be preserved. Star Wars history, and uh, as you heard yourself, great storyteller would love to hear it in its full documentary form. And we look forward to catching up with uh, Dr. Reynolds again. Also, thanks to our sponsor this week, Tops, and their wonderful Star Wars card trader app. I would imagine just a matter of time before we start maybe getting some sneak preview cards of The Last Jedi. We'll see. And I'm sure they'll show up there first. Uh, we'd love to have you email us if you'd like to uh, talk to us, play with us in between shows. Show at rebelforceradio.com. That's show at rebelforceradio.com. The voicemail line 708-320-1RFR, 708-320-1737. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Rebel Force Radio, at Jimmy Mac Radio, at Jason Swank. We're on Facebook. The only place on Facebook to find Rebel Force Radio, and that is the official Facebook page, facebook.com slash rebelforceradio, rebelforceradio.com, the official website. You can go there for all of the archives of past shows, plus great shows like Star Wars Influences, Star Wars Oxygen. They're all there at rebelforceradio.com. We're streaming. Did you know that? We can, can stream Rebel Force Radio over at wgnplus.com. What an honor it is to be on such a legacy radio station's website like WGN, WGNplus.com. Also, we're available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, just about anywhere else you can find podcasts, including probably the biggest repository of podcasts anywhere. That's on iTunes. We'd love to have you subscribe to all of the podcasts at Rebel Force Radio on iTunes and leave a review. Just one rule, please. And Rebel Force Radio is an official friend of Wikipedia. The ultimate online Star Wars encyclopedia can be found at wikipedia.com. 
And you can also find us weekly at JediNews.co.uk, Yodasnews.com, and the official Star Wars website, StarWars.com. That's it. We're out of here for a couple of weeks. Enjoy, for those of you in the United States, the 4th of July holiday. Happy Independence Day to you all, our fellow Americans out there. Have a great, safe week. And we'll be here on the other side of that with a whole lot more in this crazy, crazy Star Wars universe that just keeps getting crazier. But we love it. For Rebel Force Radio, I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember, the Force will be with you always. Get a job.